Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And with us for the second time is Tim, Shmi150. Hello. Hey, thank, thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah. Okay. Really crazy coincidence. You may or may not have noticed this. I don't think you've noticed this. Is we recorded this a year ago. Time we recorded flies. this exactly a year ago. Was it same time, date? same date? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I can believe it because it's the kind of time I would normally say that we should do exactly this kind of thing. But that yeah, is yeah, yeah. scary how quickly time flies. We were thinking about it as well. It's just insane how fast the last year has been considering what's been going on. Yeah, and I think... When you were on last, and we were talking about this, um, you had said, you were like, oh, it's okay, because we were just, I think we we must have just gone into a national lockdown at that point in time, for the first time. And you were like, oh, it's all right. I've got like five weeks worth of videos recorded. <laughs> <laughs> well, I managed, and guess what? I'm sat here in an isolation again myself with a few weeks of videos recorded. It's the way well, it goes. I, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> So what is, I mean, that, that whole process, how, how did you go about that from then on? Because presumably you have done a lot of videos in the interim of now. A lot, I imagine. I don't know. Have you, have you managed one a day or close to? Close to, more or less. I would guess between 12 months ago till now, probably about 250 videos or something. That Oof. kind of area. So a large portion of that at the beginning was under sort of restrictions in the UK. Was that quite tricky to deal with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so this time last year, I had already shot, for example, my SLS Black series being resprayed. So I had a whole series about that. And knowing what was coming, I'd already worked very hard to to shoot things in advance. And as you say, it was about five weeks of content or so to see through the majority of that strange period. Um, obviously, the rules back then were that you could go to work if you couldn't work from home so it was very much yeah. a case of doing as much work at home as possible when it was no longer possible to work from home to do things within the rules within the regulations etc um so i'd say it's always been a very peculiar one but after about two months we had a legal obligation to go over to germany 
with the permission of the the state, so to speak, um, to go to to where we had our place in Germany. And that basically, for me, opened a lot of doors because Germany was much more open than the UK. Now, uh, obviously, on a personal level, it was much more positive to be somewhere where you could do things in line with the rules. For example, days at the Nürburgring or visiting the German manufacturers. And it meant I had a lot of opportunity for filming some really cool stuff at a time when most people couldn't travel. So I basically managed to keep things going, took delivery of the M8, had most of my cars transported out to the Nürburgring at some point to go and do laps with. I think in the space of a couple of months, I had eight of my different cars around the Nordschleife. Nice. Pretty awesome. And then past the year kind of through right towards the end. And we got into, I think came back to the UK basically in time for November. But as things started to go pear-shaped coming into mid-December again, it was kind of, well, a year prior, I'd spent a lot of money to arrange having a full US work visa. And so we were thinking, well, we'll go to the Middle East for a bit and then see what happens. And then when we left the UK to go to the Middle East, UK closed up again. And at that point, it was like, well, we're away. I've got my US visa. Let's hop on a plane to America. So we went to America for the last three months, which <laughs> a strange turn. And in the US, I was shooting a video a day throughout the whole thing. And, you know, the, the, the UK, I know there's a lot in the UK news about how the US has handled the pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And there are certainly things that weren't done well. And there were certainly things that have been done better as well than, than the UK or, or different countries. Obviously, everywhere is very different. Cultures are different. People's behaviors are very different. But fundamentally speaking, being based in Miami and Florida with nice weather means that everything happens outdoors anyway. Um, one or two events that put me off where there were far too many people around. But yeah. basically speaking, there's been a lot to keep things busy. Yeah, that's pretty ideal. So go back a little, a little bit in there. So you've spent a ton more time at the Nürburgring. I think a year ago, you'd, you'd still been spending, you'd still been visiting quite often, but weren't spending tons of time. So then you had an extended period of just sort of being in that region. Oh, how, how many laps have you done now? I feel like this is a figure you probably know. Yeah, so up to this point a year ago, I can tell you it was about 33, 34 um now it's just over 100 and it, it seems silly to say in you know, a whole season i did about 70 laps of the nurburgring um you'd think it should be way more than that but 70 laps of a you know near on 10 minute lap and obviously most laps you have to do very slowly when you're going out and when you're coming back in so it does take a substantially longer amount of time was actually a lot of driving there you know it's not nowhere near enough to be fully proficient but enough to know my lefts and rights and to have yeah. <laughs> confidence in a very fast car to put the foot down which i think is exciting but also terrifying because (laughs) you're living in this world of i'm starting to go at speeds where there isn't that much margin for error Um, and i know also it's going to be the first lap i do back after obviously having not driven there since it closed in november that i need to be super conscious not to do anything silly because (laughs) that's where confidence and skill you got this balancing threshold right yeah, absolutely. Driving really, really slow stuff, when you start going off the track, you've still got like, okay, not that long, but it feels like a lot of minutes yes. before you actually leave the track. Whereas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you even from my own experience, the difference between the GT8, which by most people's standards is still a fast car, it's 450 yeah. horsepower. The difference between that and the Senna is gigantic. When I drove the GT8 around, it was one of the last of my cars last summer that I that I did laps with. It felt like I was taking a walk in the park, having been going around in the centre before, because everything goes by you so slowly, you can sort of take time to look around and take in the scenery. <laughs> and like yeah, I say, that's yeah. still a fast car. That It's those margins, isn't it? It's the margins of 0. whatever of a second and three times that amount of time. But that's a lot. 
Yeah. Yeah, and like, presumably cars like car like the GTA got quite a lot of grip. What tires is that on? Sport Cup 2s. Okay. So actually overall grip levels I- ignoring some aero stuff of like a Senna or a very fast McLaren versus the GTA, it's not tons 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 more. So cornering speed you could be somewhat in as long as you're not going really really fast. Same sort of category. I think the biggest difference probably to me is the braking. Because yeah. when you stamp on the anchors in the center on a set of warm tires with its really fancy, excruciatingly expensive brakes, with its massive wing to stop you, braking happens so dramatically but so last minute that there isn't really any margin. You know, if, if you're slightly wrong, you're going that, that, I don't know, if you're braking from 200 or 250 kilometers an hour or whatever it is, yeah. that split second you're later because you're braking right at the last moment to begin with you're in trouble like there's there's nowhere else to go whereas maybe it's something else also because of the gt8 being a manual car you're just not on the limit quite as much you know you're not absolutely thumping like that in the same way i think you know the the dual clutch style computer game generation encourages you to be much much more aggressive on the car yeah, changing down and turning in and then all on the gears just it's more um it's more uh, an emotional thing driving a car like the gt8 on the nordschleife much more uh, like the sound the feel it's a challenge and when you've driven a good lap even if it's not the fastest lap you feel like yeah that was epic yeah have you driven it in a bunch of conditions now i've tended not to do too much driving in horrible weather um understand like being a fair weather skier because it's it's kind of like, yes, you can drive and learn the wet lines. And I had a couple of interesting laps in the wet uh, in a number of different cars. But for me, obviously, a lot of it is making videos. And while it's fun to drive a wet lap, it doesn't portray the same on a video because there isn't the same sense of uh, an engine hitting its red line or screaming you know, on the edge with the tires squealing. It just yeah. looks slow and boring. Um, yeah even though you feel like, well, there's some understeer, there's some oversteer, there's more understeer. Oh my God, I'm going to hit the barriers. The video doesn't carry that. Yeah, just... absolutely. And the risk goes up significantly. Yes. I'm sure you feel like the risk goes up. Yeah. Ton. So, you know, I did, like I said, I did some wet laps in the M8, but the M8 has BMW, had BMW's MX drive, four wheel drive. It, it's safe. It's stable. You know, it's not a car I'm going to be pushing to the red, to the absolute yeah. max anyway you know it's not a race car it's a grand it's a sporty grand tour a very sporty grand tour but still it's a it's a road car so there's much more that feeling of this will probably end well whereas if you did it in the center rear wheel drive no weight on cold trophy was <laughs> good luck yeah yeah <laughs> good luck. Yeah, yeah, yeah i mean the, i don't insure my race car in the dry when i'm on track yeah but i often if i'm racing i would insure it in the wet because it's just for me, I know the chance of me coming off in the dry is touch wood or it, it, it's relatively low. Like yeah. a mistake is you might be a foot wider than intended. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the wet, a mistake, you could be facing a different direction. You could be, have gone through a wall. Like all of these things happen where you just like, the grip level is not what you think it's going to be or whatever. And that in a nice car on a racetrack, it's very expensive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I completely get that. So long story short, you know, while it's fun to take a car around the Nürburgring when it is wet, it's a it's a very serious reality check. You know, you, you can't be overconfident. You can't be stupid because it's a countdown to disaster. Yeah. It's when you want to be driving something cheaper and 
more replaceable. <laughs> yeah, although I tell you what was quite interesting was I, I did a track walk as part of the Nürburgring's Driving Academy uh, yeah. la- last August. Um, I had a couple of days of full-on all day in my 675, which was great for learning. You know, doing 15 laps in a day is a brilliant way to kind of pick up how, yeah. how it actually works. But as part of the track walk, it was really interesting to experience how slippy, even in the dry, some parts of the surface are. Oh, right. Especially yeah. with the undulations and hills of the Nordschleife. Like, you're walking and, you know, it's it's slippy in places. And so as soon as you're on, you know, with variable conditions and there's a wet surface, yeah. <laughs> did you do it in a bus? I did. In the bus, the buses <laughs> kind of stop and you get out and you walk on different sections. It's great fun. Yeah. That's, that's interesting as well, because without walking or cycling or something and actually properly looking around, you wouldn't know that. There's no way you would know other than you finding out going yes, it, when you think 100%. it's dry and it's not. Yeah. And that was one of the crazy things. Um, but also, and it's, it's cliche to talk about it because everyone discusses the Nürburgring in this way. The fact that it has so many ups and downs when you are physically walking up the hills or down them, that's when you really realize how, how dramatic it is. Yeah. Like computer games give you a bit of a sense and then driving it gives you a bit more of a sense, but walking it is a different level. You're, you're quite literally thinking, God, this is, this is an exhausting hill to walk up. And yeah. I'm flying up in or flying up or down it in a car at whatever speed. Yeah. And then you start to think, oh, actually, maybe I don't need to brake as hard as I think I am because you get a lot of braking from the hill or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And that makes a big difference. You know, there are, there are quite a few corners on the Nordschleife where you do need to be aware of what's coming up, you know, to get early on the power. Um, the, the long run that you have up out of Adenau Breitscheid is, is a big one. If you're not carrying the speed up out of the, the first uh, tight corner to the right you you basically lose it on the uphill ascent and it's a big long upwards climb which in a car like the center is easy obviously but in yeah. something slower you need to <laughs> you need to have planned that one out in advance yeah, yeah yeah massively be aware so you spent a bit of time in germany oh you had your black series down there do you know what the sls black series was really in many ways for my youtube channel if i can kind of talk about it like this way it was a big part of the savior of my YouTube channel in 2020, when so many people obviously in my position were, were struggling with creating content, mm. that car, which had been such a, a long anticipated car on my channel, I'd t- been talking about it for years, had this whole project building it up and, you know, going to film videos of it being resprayed and changing the color of the wheels to silver and doing these kind of things. And yes, perhaps I made more videos about that, <laughs> about that topic than I would have done otherwise, but you know, with, with an absence of other things, really going on there isn't there wasn't a huge amount else to to keep busy with but i then drove in that five month period with the sls i think twelve thousand miles which is absolutely absurd for an sls black series (laughs) i I think most of them will never in that like probably less than five percent of sls black series will ever do that much let alone in five months yeah um but it did you know it did everything it did nordschleife laps it did daily driving grand touring took it down all the way across europe multiple times obviously eventually rentec tuned it modified it made it even noisier and angrier and just made it into completely my own car but it was really a car that i think is so both iconic and cool whether it's the doors or the engine or what it stands for or being amg's first car or that amazing michael schumacher advert years ago in the tunnel where it like did that flipping u-turn uh, over the roof everything about it just connected and was cool to share and i had the big plans with it i think you probably know that originally i actually bought the car and resprayed it with the intention of then flying it straight to the us to do gumball and then mm. do a tour in the us with it through the rest of the summer 
Um, but alas, that obviously all got shelved, but it gave me so many opportunities. And then obviously it was the same time the AMG GT Black Series was launched. So I got to take my SLS to the behind the scenes filming I did for the Mercedes video. And then also to the uh, official launch of the car as well for the GT. So like from a timing perspective, I must have filmed about 30 or 40 videos with the SLS because it just, it just fit with everything. It's like yeah. I, the timing for me could not have been more fortunate to have done it right then and, and bizarrely as well you know i bought the car uh, in february last year and the crazy thing now looking around at the market is cars like that have actually shot up in value during this time a lot of people really? have sat down looking for well the, i can tell you right now the, the cheapest sls black series advertised in europe right now not a u.s spec the u.s cars are slightly cheaper the cheapest european spec car is a hundred thousand euros more than i paid oh nice a year later which nice. is, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not, I have no intention of selling mine, but you do have to be aware for insurance value yeah. and, you know, what, what the car is actually worth. It's but nice, right? yeah, it, it's really interesting because I also think it's a car of an era where a lot of people have sat down and said, actually, you know, I've missed out on that one. They, those cars were genuinely rare. Whereas, you know, the GT Black Series, there'll be 2000 of them. It's a completely different game now. No, I probably haven't helped the value of my car by respraying <laughs> it, doing loads of miles, taking it to the Nürburgring, doing a top speed run in it. <laughs> who knows what else oh, yeah i don't know i think you i think you've done a lot for the value of your car personally ignoring the mileage like it, i think it looks a lot better now than it did before so it looked good yeah. before but no it's a it's a cool thing I, I, I mean i won't sell it it's a huge part of my own you know experiences and and the future is going to be very exciting as well when my gt black series arrives which at the point of recording hasn't but i presume by the point of publishing of this it will have which will be quite cool that will be exciting with the we'll talk about that in a sec so with with the sls black series that was like buying a car that you've you've wanted one of those for like a long time but yeah sort of put off because of various reasons or whatever do you think having now done that you're like oh you you might go a different that might sway future purchases yeah i think so you know, one of the biggest things for me personally about that I enjoy about making about my car purchasing decisions, and obviously this is in quite a unique position given the type of content that I create about them, is the whole experience from when it begins, being part of the story of a car from when it's first launched to ordering it, building my spec for it, getting that first opportunity to drive it, eventually taking delivery, doing the first miles, building the memories with it, and ultimately cementing it a spot in my garage. Because both I enjoy that process and making a unique car, but also the content I, I make around the car, of course, as well along the way. But the SLS was really a departure from the norm for me because of buying a, a used car. It's the, it's the only car in my garage, I think I can say, that I wasn't the first owner of. Yeah, that's true. Out of the 15 cars, 14, 13 15 something cars. Um, it's the only one. That, <laughs> actually, by the time of this video, I think I might have bought, uh, by the time of this podcast, I think I might have bought another one. But it, basically, I tend to go for new cars because I, I, I enjoy that whole experience. And the SLS certainly, you know, I think if you if you wait for something, and I'm sure you can relate to this in the same way I can. I'm familiar with what the prices of many of these cars were not all that long ago. And, you know, they co it commands a premium. Now I could have bought that exact same car probably for 100,000 less a few years before. Yeah. Um, hindsight, right? Crystal ball, wish we all had one. But that particular car, just having lusted after one for so long, was very satisfying to eventually purchase. You know, I, I didn't say, hey, I want to buy one and just browse classifieds and buy one. 
it was, I'm going to wait and wait and wait. And then the right car came along and I kind of couldn't say no to it. I wasn't wasn't actually uh, ready. And you know, when everything started going mad, we could say in, in March 2020, at that point, I was thinking, oh, this was a bad idea to buy a really expensive car right now. Um, and being a car bought in Germany, I'd had to buy it cash, no finance or anything like that. So I was like, oh, there's a lot of money tied up in one car. But like I said a few moments ago, that was when it turned out to be a blessing in disguise that it gave me the ultimate, I think, ignition and interest. And so many of my audience were aware that I'd wanted an SS Black Series for years. So it just it just fit. And And Mercedes had actually teased and set me up for this a bit because about six months before I bought it, I had been doing some filming with the Mercedes-Benz Museum. And while I was in Stuttgart for a couple of days, they said, here, have our SLS Black Series. <laughs> See how you like it. <laughs> so I had spent a few days doing a couple of hundred miles driving in one. And that, I think, uh, had my eyes on the adverts, both in the UK and around Europe. And then, hey, along came this car. And I, I'm not sure if you know the story, but the car I bought and very much changed was actually a car I had filmed myself about six years before. Oh, I didn't, I didn't remember that. So this, well, this is quite fun. I I, I had filmed a video in a showroom where this very car had been sitting for sale back in 2014. So when it was about three or four months old at the time, a a friend of mine helped me connect the dots to work out that that was the same car up for sale again. And immediately I was just like, yeah, it has to be done because back, (laughs) back then it was actually, I had just bought my first McLaren 12C, which was, you know, a third of the price of an SLS black series based on the market values at the time. And I never would have thought that a car like that could be possible. You know, I walked around it in the showroom being like, this is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> SLS Black Series, I love it. Never did I think that that car would one day be in my garage. But hey, it's the exact same one, which it's I think is quite cool. It's mad that it's exactly the same one. Yeah. That's really cool. And those sorts of situations, and they, they do happen every now and then, of finding a car that you remember from like six years ago like an exact car yeah. you're like oh yeah. wait i did something with that yeah when i when we worked it out um and it, it was it was easy enough to work it out because it had actually been wrapped so it was in a distinct uh, design it was kind of made to look like an american police car black okay. and white um so it was very easy to know that that, that was the same one you know and in the re- in the previous owner history of the new car it was from that area and it all, it all added up and we were able to confirm it. And then it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, you can't write that kind of story. And I love a story behind a car. I work very hard with the specs of my cars to make sure there's a reason for them or it links to something. Nothing's done just, oh, because, um, there's always a reason. So yeah, that was part of the whole, like, I've got to, I've just got to buy this one. (laughs) This is the one. And you've got plans to drive that a whole lot more at some point. I think so. So, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I feel very spoiled to have far more cars than I, in many cases, know what to do with. But I think that is part of collecting, right? If you collect anything, whether it's somebody who collects watches or trainers, sneakers, or whatever it is in the world. And and I seem to have an obsession with collecting track focus supercars, (laughs) Um, which is very much the theme of my my garage. Uh, Of course, there will always be new things coming in. But I think it's going to be the way with the cars I own that they, you know, I buy a car, use it properly, feature it very heavily, make tons of videos with it, try and almost condense its entire crazy life into this like six to 12 month period. And then from there on still enjoy owning it and still enjoy taking it out from time to time and doing big drives with multiple of my cars together. And we can do that again, but it it won't have, you know, the, the, the front of house position. It won't be 
the car that sees daily driving again. You know, the, the SLS, like I say, I'll never sell it. But if I only drive it every three months, I'm still very happy having it. You know, I'm yeah. still very, very happy to look at it in a garage and remember. I think the biggest, one of the biggest things for me is, you know, the, the, looking at the physical car reminds you of so many good times and so many yeah. crazy and fun adventures. You know, I can think of a lot of things with that car. You know, some misbehavior, but also, you know, like the moments the first time I drove it on the Nürburgring, the first time I drove it to 200 miles an hour, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's just cool. It's just fun. But then does that over time, okay, I know with this car, you're like, I'm never going to sell that. For me, that makes it really difficult to sell cars. Yeah, I think I think I tend to decide generally before I buy a car whether I'm going to keep it or one day sell it. Um, Okay. You know, I don't necessarily know how long I'm going to keep a car for or, you know, in the case of, say, the Taycan, when I bought that, I didn't know if it'd be three months or three years, but I know I'm not going to keep it. With the, you know, upcoming later this year, Lamborghini Huracan STO, my first Lambo, I'm going into that with the plan to keep it as well because I've gone outrageous with the spec and it's going to be a car again that I'll use a lot. So things do change for sure. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if one day I do sell a car that I didn't plan to sell for whatever reason, just changed my heart or didn't gel with it or who knows, or somebody made a really good offer. Sometimes that happens. Um, and you know, common sense has to prevail at the end of the day, but generally, you know, if it's like the G wagon, that will go eventually the M three, that will go eventually. But I think the real, the, the special kind of semi-limited you know some cars are numbered but some are just limited by time or whatever yeah I, I i care so much more about myself personally building the car collection it's you know what i desire to do some people would want to go and buy a, a very nice house some people would want to build up the bank balance and put money into stocks or whatever it is but for me it's cars you know, I, I live around cars i spend every day around cars and it's it's a physical embodiment embodiment of what I'm doing online. For what Shmi 150 mm. is, it's that collection of cars in the garage. So it feels special to keep them. And who knows what the future values of these things are. But if you don't plan on selling them, you don't worry about it. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, make yeah, some money, yeah, yeah. spent it on a car. Now I get to own that car, and even if I don't drive it, I'm still able to enjoy having it in the collection. And I've always been a bit of a hoarder. When when I was young, I used to keep everything I could keep. Always annoyed my mother, continues to annoy my girlfriend. Um, <laughs> it's just the way it is. Anything you've still I can... got a lot of boxes around for items that could be everything. sold at some point in time. I've got collections of everything now. Um, model cars, Lego, Hot Wheels, swatches, just stuff that I always end up with lots of. Um, and <laughs> the biggest one of those by far is cars. <laughs> yeah, the biggest cars. and most expensive and yeah. most faff is cars. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. I'm, I'm very lucky that somehow I, I've fallen into a job that allows me to literally film the cars and, and make my living through it. It's kind of the ultimate dream, really, to be able to have this obsession that's also my income stream. Yeah, absolutely. Have you managed to get, get all of the up-to-date mini versions of all of the big ones? Yes, pretty much. Uh, pretty much. It's hard with new cars because the model cars come after, but I've more or less got every car that I own in the one to 18 scale model exactly paint matched with number plates to my real cars nice so it's kind of like i can i can dream up and imagine what the garage would have looked like if i still had that one with this new one or <laughs> <laughs> in one to 18 scale because they're, they're actually surprisingly lifelike when you just take a photo of them on on the ground and yeah. you hold your camera right down on the ground the photos actually end up looking really you know at a glance at a small image they look like a car they don't look yeah. like a model 
Um, and when you put a little line of them together, it looks like it could be a photo shoot of the actual cars. Do you <laughs> sit there funny. sort of planning out your garage or what garaging and stuff like that and be like, okay, well, that one's going to go left of that one. It's just going to go in the middle. And then this one's going to be said from the right. If you could add up the amount of hours I've spent over the last, particularly the three or four months before moving into the garage, planning which cars are going to go where inside it and not just the cars, but also the lifts and also the office space and just reshuffling and floor planning and moving. <laughs> it's been a lot. It's been far too much. But So when, hey. when do you move into your first garage? Well, in, in theory, early May. Um, very early May is the plan. The Schmuseum will be born. Um, there's a lot of work and at this stage I'm still trying to get my head completely around how it's all going to play out in terms of obviously the security needs to be installed before the cars can come in but then equally I've got to be thinking about what I'm doing with videos which people will probably now have seen some of and the behind the scenes content that we're trying to create of it all as well with the team that's now helping me because it's become too much of an operation to to run solo and this this has really been the the point at which I've made that call up till now I've pretty much run everything solo even through the us and all through last year but now just managing the cars and you know from your from your own cars everything needs looking after everything has a service every year there are issues there are mot's there's tax to deal with insurance it's at this level like i can't do it solo anymore especially not with keeping so busy with other projects so a bit more of a team operation and i think this was really this has really been the time where i've said right it's time for shmi 150 version 2 or you know the next yeah the next generation of what is shmi 150 moving into this um this location which also in a nice way i think for me will mean slightly less traveling in the future um i think for a lot of people who did travel a lot for the work for their work 2020 was really a time of saying actually i quite enjoy being at home yeah um quite enjoy a bit more downtime um you know i i've had 2020 was the the longest i've had sitting at home or between flights or whatever whatever metric you want to look at yeah. in a decade so it was really a time that was welcome in many ways gave a lot of thinking space yeah and then and so moving forward you're trying to your work trying to work work things out a little differently to be able to spend a bit more time at home or yeah, a bit Easier, more time at yeah. home, and, and the garage is the main way to do that, because I think the garage opens up so many more opportunities beyond just storing my cars. It also brings in the opportunities for stories around both memorabilia in my garage or people coming to visit the garage and, and something to, you know that connects with them to having a, a, a physical location even to work on. You know, I've always covered stories under the tagline for the channel living the supercar dream and that can be you know way back that was buying a car sticking on an exhaust and wrapping it the kind of cliche mm. youtuber thing now yeah <laughs> it was fairly <laughs> unique back then um nowadays it's been you know respraying a car and respraying the gt black series as well through to my red focus rs project full project from the ground up um similar in a way with the gr yaris and you know i think one of the interesting parts of that for me is effectively building the garage going through that whole garage process because yeah. it's part of it right it's 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 my next dream as well and it's something that many years ago you know one day i wanted in the same way i was collecting whatever it was then pokemon cards or whatever yeah <laughs> have I you held, up, up, held onto any of your pokemon no, cards from the back no, of the day sadly not i definitely <laughs> would have had a lot that were very valuable however as a teenager 
you know, five years or so after collecting them, I did make a lot of money selling them all on eBay. So oh, as a teenager, idea. that felt great. So I was all right with that. Um, you know, the, the dream was to have a space to store and present the cars. And I'm very excited for, I'm, I'm excited to just dig into it because I've never done a big property project, even down to installing the office and the mezzanine to yeah. installing the lighting, to painting the walls and the floor. I actually want to just do it all, not literally myself, but I want to have the pro professionals for each category there and kind of get involved and do it with them. Cause I think it's a big part of the car dream. You know, the, the car dream is your first car, your first supercar, your first kind of collection of cars, your first dream garage. And it's a, it's a very American style. I think you know, perhaps to, to do this big garage thing, more American than, than UK. Generally the UK is more cars parked in a storage, less yeah. people having their own warehouses for their collections. But it's something I've always really quite wanted to do and i've been trying to find the right location to do this setup for probably two and a half years now i think yeah it's been a while so i've had i've had a lot of time to think about it and in that time i've been to visit probably 20 25 different venues before i found the right one yeah so every every location has been new floor plans new deciding which cars can go where (laughs) all of that (laughs) what's been the most interesting sort of bit about it uh, designing it or that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about going in and you're like, you know what? I've really enjoyed messing with aircon or something. <laughs> well, I mean, I haven't really got that far through all of this yet. Personally, I love planning, just planning how it could be, you know, mm. planning. How does this all connect? If I put the office there, what's the view? Can I see all of the cars nicely from my desk? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but there's so, there's been so much to think about, um, which is why I haven't, I haven't gone full on. I, I considered a lot. Should I build the whole place and then present it finished? Should yeah. I start, you know, from day one with here's my garage? But no. I didn't really want to go down that path for a few reasons. One, because, of course, I want to share the adventure of making it. Um, and I was stuck in the US for the early few months of the year. So I, I couldn't do that. And the other was also because I know people will suggest things and say, why didn't you do this? And I'm like, <laughs> why didn't I do that? That would have been great. So yeah. doing it with the audience kind of involved in the story gives this whole new, I think, well, it's, it's thousands of minds thinking about it as opposed to a couple. Yes. Which will definitely create some interesting ideas. Even the people I've spoken about it with so far have suggested so many cool things that are now going to be in the space. Incorporated. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the journey, I guess that's the fun bit. The journey is a big fun bit. The the most stressful part for me, which I think a lot of people won't realize, is how expensive it is. Mm. The the entire setup, even to install all the security things you need and all the deposits and all the fire and security contracts and equipment and just everything is astronomically more expensive than car storage. I mean, the the unit, if let's say we can house 15 cars before putting any lifts or maybe up to 30 if you've put yeah. a bunch of lifts in even if it's 30 cars it's still probably two to three times as expensive as putting 30 cars into a car storage yeah so when it's only 15 cars in there it's five or six times more expensive which a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about and the you know property prices anywhere near london i think pretty much anywhere in the uk are so expensive that the whole place makes things like the Senna and the Ford GT seem relatively affordable, <laughs> which is yeah. what I hadn't necessarily considered. I think when I when I started looking out, looking for un- units and spaces, I never expected how much it would all cost. Mm. For sure, that was that's been a bit a bit of a shock. 
Yeah, because that's something I've sort of wondered. Because I've, you look at you know uh, storing a car with X person, Y Y person, whatever, and there's like a minimum price, and you shop around and you can go further from London, but like there's sort of a price. And then you see the more expensive ones, and they cost that. And then you go, how much would it cost for me to have a garage with a car in it? You wouldn't be able to save money. The the, the fundamental reason for that, though, is um, car storage facilities aren't generally very profitable businesses. In many cases, they mm. are created by supercar collectors who need somewhere to store their cars and their friends' cars. But what ends up happening from my understanding of the industry in general is that car storage often becomes a case of making contacts. You know, so long as the business just about okay. breaks even, the contacts made through the industry for car sales or for other business ideas that are generated around it. It's, it's one of those like, like owning boutique hotels, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a business that isn't going to may ever make fortunes, but opens very interesting doors. Yeah. If you have a, a super high end car storage business, your customers are people that are at least worth meeting for sure. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. Interesting people from, from whatever, uh, whatever it is specifically, you know, from company bosses to people who work in, in senior positions, there's all sorts of things happen. I mean, you, you and I know, well, it's, it's like when you go on Gumball, for example, the, the attendees list on Gumball, many people who are there are just yeah. there for who they meet while they're there. And you watch people having, making business deals over excessive amounts of drinks <laughs> while they're exhausted at the end of a long drive, but it's just how it works. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, yeah, it's the social element. All sorts of car things like the, uh, um, Corsa Cliente or whatever. Clienti yeah, the Ferrari Corsa Cliente. Yeah, exactly. Buy an FXXK, run it for a year, do a lot of business, job done, yeah. marketing. Because <laughs> there's, well, there, there's your list of 20 billionaires taking part in one event. Yeah. And you it's can exactly how it works. Do you, with the, the garage setup, do you have, I guess it depends on how many cars there's going to be in there and stuff like that. But if you try to design it so that you can take any car out anytime with relatively minimal effort? Yes. Uh, absolutely. I went through a lot of different ideas of, oh, what if I block in, you know, here I can squeeze in mm. extra cars, etc. But one of the big things to me about my cars is that I want them to always be accessible. If something's too complicated to even move, like let's say you have one of these new triple stackers. Yeah. If you've got the car on the very top, which means you need to move the two below and something that's blocking them in front of them, you never will. It's, no. that's, that's never happening. Now, obviously with a bit of a team in the garage, this all gets much easier. Um, you know, it's not just me on my own having to shuffle everything around, but basically speaking, the idea is that nothing needs more than one other car moved. And basically yeah. that's when cars are on lifts, you know, one above another, you just yeah. need to move the one below to get the one on top out. I've found that like at home now I've got a bit more space and I could fit a bunch more cars in, but it's like, I can have two, I can basically have three, three that are ready to go. As soon as yeah. you have four, that's it. You've got to move a car to, to get in a car. And like you said, as soon as you've got to move something, it's just the chance of it getting used, just, it just, you just look at the ones that you can drive straight away and go, well, I'll drive one of them. Yeah. So one, one of my current ideas is with, with the, the way the floor plan works is to have this kind of road racetrack style layout through the middle. I'm not sure if by this point I've done it or tried it or, <laughs> or we've seen if it works, but if it, if it does, it will have quite a cool way of looking inspired by a collection that i visited before okay while everything's still 
accessible because it, it, it it's a big thing like you said, as soon as as soon as it's effort you're just never going to take that car out i think I, i'm very lucky that my garage is located on some nice countryside roads in fact it's it's literally on some roads i've filmed on regularly in the past um so i can pull any car out you know i can literally if i've got 15 minutes i can take a car for a 10 minute run and park it back up oh, and that's done. ideal and I want to be able to enjoy that. You know, I want to be able to say, I wonder how these two actually compare and just take two cars, one after the other and go do a drive. That in itself, being in a location that you can go for a drive and it's the drive starts at the door yes. rather than 45 minutes. Like, I think that's something that people that live in London are just like, this is just the thing that happens to other people. We never get to enjoy this sort yes, of luxury. Yes, we definitely don't. And, you know, London has got significantly worse for cars in the last 12 months. Uh, it's, it's a completely different landscape now to where it was and it was already pretty awful to be honest i i mean for me i think taycan for london and everything else out you know mm. <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm interested to see which cars i end up keeping at my place in town um i have three parking spots in yeah. the garage under my building i could have more i could have less if, if i wanted um and i'm going to be interested to see which cars i end up gravitating towards having having here probably be taycan for getting around the city G63 for anything that needs some kind of lugging, and then one of the sports supercars on rotation, depending, you know, how I'm feeling, what's what just yeah. what I was filming that day, or what's been moving around. Because what's your sort of commute going to be? What sort of time? Like uh, half an half hour, an hour ten minutes, ten miles, half an hour. Taycan, 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 hundred um, percent. And, and can't you lug stuff in the Taycan? You can, you can fit a decent amount. Obviously, you can't like go into a trailer or take anything huge but it's got a pretty decent amount of luggage space fold the seats back seats as well back doors well more than enough i don't tend to need a very practical car for anything and probably the taycan's too big it'd probably make more sense to have something tiny but i think if this is this is the one situation where an ev works well in in my life you know i do a lot of long day journeys where mm. an ev is utterly useless because the range just isn't good enough uh, and road trips as well and just traveling with an electric car is not the best. But for going backwards and forwards on a half an hour drive every day, when you can have a charging point in the garage, you know, I will get there, swing into the garage, plug it in, and by the time I'm ready to leave, it's 100% again. And yeah. actually, the, the Taycan retains charge amazingly well. This is something that I hadn't really considered until the US trip. I didn't know what would happen. I was trying to ask Porsche before I, before we went away, or rather when we had left the UK and then realized we were going to get stuck away, I said to Porsche, yeah. how long is this car going to last for? Is, is it good to be left? But the reality is that after, you know, I sent somebody came around to, to check on the car after we'd been away for three weeks and it had gone down 1%. Okay. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's all good then. <laughs> that could just sit there because what happens is the when the normal 12-volt battery dies, it recharges it off the main power supply, charges it back up again, well, it doesn't die, obviously. It's like a built-in battery charger. And the whole the whole system just retains charge. I reckon you could probably leave it for a year and it wouldn't be a problem. So it has like a little battery and a big battery? Yeah. Basically, your normal, typical little battery for running your tracker and your electronics yeah. and security and locking the car and that kind of stuff, I guess. But the big ba- it can charge the little battery off the big battery. Um, and the big battery is 93 kilowatts or whatever. And that's more than enough to keep it alive I guess as long as you could ever really want to. Although it'll be interesting to see in the future what happens with barn find electric cars. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. what do you do with an electric car that hasn't been started in twenty years and it's probably completely corroded? And I Surely don't even you know just what. Plug in your CTEC charger and say, "Renew battery, please." <laughs> <laughs> Boost it. Yes. The whole thing explodes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. We <laughs> have to think about that kind of thing. But um, no, it's it's super convenient because you know I'll, I will if I know I'm going somewhere a longer distance with the you know and I want to take the Taycan EV style, it will just be on near enough a hundred percent every time I bring it home. Yeah, and, you know if I'm at my space every day or two, it it will always be fully charged, and then I only take another car if I want to go further than 150 miles or something. Yeah, and you can't charge at home, can you? No, I don't have the ability, although it's, it's a funny conversation with the building management because, as you can imagine, a number of residents have electric cars now. Yeah, um, There's a Mini E and a Model 3 down there in the garage and a couple of other things. And it's one of those of, do they go for it now or do they wait a little bit longer and it becomes less expensive and a better service? Presumably they have some sort of electricity in there, though. Yes, but I don't think in the way that you could get any kind of decent quick charging. And, you know, a car like the Taycan takes three days to charge off a normal main socket. It's not effective. So what I what I figured with the Taycan was if you wanted to, if you needed to use it every day and needed to charge it back up every night, you couldn't get away with more than about 50 to 60 miles a day. Right. Otherwise, you won't get the charge back into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On a normal main socket, which is pretty useless for anything other than your around-the-corner commute. Like, that would be fine for my commute now. Absolutely yeah. fine. But it wouldn't be fine for... No, longer distance. Yeah, because I was looking at it after I drove the rear-wheel drive one. Like, that was the first electric car I sort of drove that went, that I went, ooh, ooh, I could, like, see myself Yeah, because it's a Porsche. It's a Porsche first and an EB second. And I found it had a really weird time because when I revealed that I'd bought the Taycan, which is a completely spontaneous decision, I just decided I want to try it. You know, I want to give it a go and and just go head on in. I'm not that kind of early adopter massive supporter of evs but i felt as a car enthusiast who's got a pretty good understanding of most of the market i should own one of these and try it so that i can give some kind of actual feedback from my experience but it completely polarizes people i had people who are saying i'm stopping following how dare you buy an ev you know you're not a petrol head etc etc and then on the other hand i had ev early adopters you know the people who are less bothered by barriers to entry and will yeah. work around problems with more effort than you know the general public i had them saying oh you're getting all of this wrong why are you getting it wrong whereas i was just trying to show my actual experiences yeah i couldn't believe how controversial it would be like i yeah it's like going into politics or something um people just flying in both directions but it's been a really interesting experience just in terms of learning which are the charging points not to use and which are the ones that work well and what situations can you use the car. You know, in many ways, driving something like the Taycan, um, you know, like we just said, it's it's a Porsche first. It feels like driving a Panamera. It feels like driving a quiet luxury Porsche. Yeah. The steering, the pedal response is not the same as driving a Tesla or something. But then in many other ways, when you're just cruising along, it's kind of Rolls-Royce-esque because you have instant torque and it's silent and it's just a lovely place to be. the ride is amazing. Yeah. It's silky smooth, isn't it, in the Taycan? And it's just a really nice car. Just a really nice car. And you forget, when you're actually driving, you forget that it's an EV. It only becomes relevant when it pings up that it's running out and you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Yeah. (laughs) But the the theory then is if you're charging at home, you start it every day on 100%, so you don't need to go to a petrol station. You know, if you take your car, you have to fill up you just accept that you have to fill up. If yeah. you started every single morning with 100% or nearly 100%, you don't have to stop anywhere. Yeah. You, you don't which even is, have to go waste 10 minutes at a petrol station. Which I'd had never thought about. And I'd always thought, ah, oh, charging cars is annoying and stuff like that. And then over the last six months, 
I've had experience with some more electric cars and then I had that Taycan for a bit. And then after I'd had the Taycan and it's, it's this electric thing has been like seeping into my brain that it's possible to <laughs> get in a car that is already warm and ready to go with and making no noise and it's got 100% range. Yeah. It's fully charged every day. If you charge at home, it's like somebody came around overnight and filled up your car for you. And warmed it for you before you got in in, in it. Like, yeah. <laughs> that whole thing. Then when I got in my S4 and it had been getting lower and lower on the on fuel and I'd been doing loads of short trips and then I had needed a long one and we were like, oh, wouldn't it have just been so great if this was fully charged? Like, if it was like fully charged yeah, when I left, go. that would have been damn convenient. Yeah, and, for sure. <laughs> but it's um, it's an interesting one. It, it really is. And I, I get people's adversity to it because it is a learning a learning curve. Um, but I'm I'm certainly not put off future EVs. I, I like I guarantee I'll have more EVs in the future for sure. Uh, and I'm quite excited by what they can do. I just hope that we're allowed to have a world with EVs and combustion engines living in harmony. I, yes. I, I worry that there are so my, many pushes from governments, particularly the UK government, to try and get rid of engines in the traditional sense. And I think there might be a case of stabbing themselves in the foot in this respect because... I'm sure there will be technologies we don't even yet know about to be developed yeah. in the coming decade or two. You know, something that obviously there are things being worked on, like synthetic fuels, hydrogen, even making more efficient combustion engines. But there are probably ideas that people are working on that you and I have never heard of yet. Yeah, absolutely. That will filter down or perhaps grow. And because of the massive push towards electric, R&D budgets aren't being spent there. R&D budgets are all being spent on electric because that's what everyone's, you know, been said, hey, we'll give benefit businesses the best lease rates on or best, you know, benefit yeah. kinds or whatever on on these this category of cars. That's what you got to do. Yeah, subsidized all this sort of stuff. I was yeah. looking at something recently and it was it was about the way you define these sorts of rules and the way you do it and one option which is saying, okay, by a certain date it has to all be electric. That's the the thing. Your manufacturer basically has one avenue. They've got to go, okay, it has to be electric by that date. We have no choice, kind of scrap, efficiency, whatever. Like, it just has to be electric by that date. Whereas if you put, like, a 5% annual reduction in CO2, something like that, like... Yeah. And it just I it's a rolling figure, they'll work out the best solution. I am firmly in the camp that... If you had said to AMG, for example, this four litre twin turbo V8, which has been shrinking over time, you know, it was six litre, yeah. six litre, four, five and a half, whatever, um, down to the four litre twin turbo. If you said to them, right, you don't need to go electric, you can spend some money improving that engine, make that engine more efficient, maybe bring it down to a small, slightly smaller capacity, yeah. whatever, it, whatever it needs to be, budgets could improve that even further. And, you know, there are cars out there that do 60, 70 miles per gallon, a bit more budget towards that, they'll do 100 miles per gallon. Yeah. But because because everyone's kind of said, right, don't spend any more on those, those are actually being used for longer than they would otherwise have been used. Those engines are now going to continue. You know, take the next generation uh, S-Class, for example. That's going to have a 4-litre twin-turbo V8, whereas it might have had something that was improved based on that Yeah. had Mercedes not been told you've got to make electric cars. There's, it is really complicated and it is quite, it's quite an interesting space for the solutions, but it is having these sorts of hard rules do make it tricky. Yeah. It's a disturbingly political game, unfortunately. 
for those of us who who like it for the passion of emotion unfortunately cars are very much a thing that governments have to use to appear green and to gain to gain votes at the end of the day it it looks like saving the world helping the environment whether it's right or wrong none of us really know at this stage um and i i I worry that you know here in in the uk and around europe two decades ago diesel cars were being pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed everyone was like you've got to make diesel go diesel get every car on the road diesel and look at the last five years that didn't go so well did it yeah (laughs) and i I slightly worry that we're watching a deja vu with electric that's where i'm at on it very possibly and we had this weird one um it's an an eu regulation about that cars are are they going to get bigger displacements again i can't remember what this was like uh porsche it was like a it was a limit on what is it it's a specific output per liter oh really they brought in a specific output per liter so engines have to get larger so So they can make the power get bigger to do the power like Oh, what guys what, what but even idea. even i think in some ways twin turbos have been slightly disingenuous to the statistics because when you're driving a, a a turbo engine you never get the performance figures that were targeted whereas never. they're not performance figures you never get the uh, economy figures efficiency figures that were targeted because they just don't unless you're driving them really gently and not even using the turbos you don't get into it um whereas a, a, a naturally aspirated engine you're much more likely to get closer to it or well, certainly from, from my experiences if you have a you know forced induction of some description it's not you're not going to be as close to it so all of these things are developed and created to to work around whatever legislation is imposed whereas the people imposing the legislation probably don't know as much as the people working on the technologies yeah well they they absolutely don't like, <laughs> I, it's it's highly unlikely isn't it they they're yeah. incredibly well informed but they like we said there'll be people working on stuff that might be a better solution so if you just steam in and say this is the answer um yeah your the turbo point is so true because i remember like it was when Anyone that's owned a turbocharged car and lives in a city, that's yeah, probably the first, the first time they've ever experienced single-digit fuel economy numbers. Like, oh, yeah. 9 MPG. Whereas if you have an NA engine, you're just never, never going to get that low. It's no. somewhat impossible. Yeah, fascinating. Well, okay, we've, we've taken a significant detour from where we were at. The <laughs> AMG GT Black Series, uh, whatever the latest one, AMG GT Black Series? That is the latest yeah, one. Yeah, that's the one. Not a GTR Black Series, as everyone says. Just um, AMG GT Black Series. This got sort of leaked at one point in time, <laughs> as everything gets leaked. And then I remember seeing a video from AMG, Mercedes, some of that, that group, of someone sneaking in, taking some pictures, and it was you. <laughs> <laughs> so, funny story, this. Really funny story. Obviously, like anything at this level, it was shot a long time before it was public. Mm. Um, so when I when I saw and filmed this video with with Mercedes, and to, to be honest, maybe I should rewind back a little bit. I was kind of super lucky to be involved because this was at the time, as I said, uh, last year in May when we had gone over to uh, we'd gone over to Germany and been based in Germany. And AMG wanted to create this video, and I'm you know I'm I'm sure I was not exactly top of the list of of people they they wanted to invite, but I imagine with travel restrictions. I was in Germany and available. So somehow the call yeah. came in saying, Hey, would you like to be part of this? Uh, and it wasn't a paid gig or anything like that. It was, it was just a, you know, we're going to shoot this video. We could hire an actor or if you'd like to do it, 
you're welcome yeah. to be part of it. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, how can I not want to do that? I'm there with my SLS Black Series, right? And this is a car I've got my name down for as well. Like, being part of it's epic because normally that kind of thing is like Lewis Hamilton or yeah. Valtteri Bottas or yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody who's actually a household name or, or significant Mercedes employee. Um, no, so we, we shot this video, uh, like I say, probably four to six weeks before it came out. And I, I filmed a little behind the scenes video myself. I got to bring my SLS along to the, to the launch. And I mean, like, like many major productions and, you know, television type stuff, it was a traditional media crew as opposed to an in-house or car themed crew. Yeah. So not everybody around was in, as into the cars as I was. Now I'm standing there like fawning over the GT Black <laughs> series, trying to take in every detail and everyone around is like, eh, it's a car. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so we, we made the video, obviously, giving this storyline that I was effectively sneaking in with my phone, taking pictures, and then taking the car out for a joyride. And yeah. I, I think I can say now, I did get to drive it back then nice. in unusual circumstances. Um, as part of the filmic, some of it's out on track. So I drove the GT Black Series when there was only one of them in the world on a racetrack at night with no floodlights sick <laughs> so the first time i ever drove that car was we need to film some like driving impression shots you know like so driving reasonably aggressively yeah in pitch black on a track i had no idea where it went left or right <laughs> absolutely no idea it's mercedes test track so it's not even like it's online to look up yeah and i'm like yeah this is safe this is great <laughs> no it, it was completely safe but it was it was uh, it was a lot of fun it just didn't give me much space in my mind to even try and focus or take in anything about the car because i was so yeah. like oh the camera's in the right place am i you know doing the right thing etc cetera, etc cetera. but then like you say this was really fun because we did all of this and then there was the back and forwards in the edit and you know like i say I, I just basically didn't do that much other than sneak down a ladder and go pull a car cover off and yeah. climb on board and take it for a drive so there wasn't really much from from my side's input but going backwards and forwards on the video edit we got to probably about a week before the reveal and then lo and behold these spy shots appeared online and we knew exactly where they came from we knew who took them and it was it was really at this stage it was like ah oh, really you know because for me it was kind of we had we had this whole build up prepared we had this whole like stuff i was going to share of the behind the scenes you know without revealing the car and the build up yeah. to, to the day and you can imagine global corporate right of course there's a, a full structure for everything and then these shots came out which was in the room where uh they were doing private viewings of the car to very select customers in the build-up to the reveal yeah. but it was quite funny just because of how it looked like it was part of the story it looked it like did. those photos were the one were as if i had taken them it was in a completely different place it was the the photos were in a place about three hours from where the behind the scenes garage was yeah you know from where i was where the test video track is sorry maybe two hours from where the test track is um where we where we shot the actual video in a workshop to the workshop where the pictures were were, were leaked but it was really uh, in so many ways it was frustrating because it was such a cool i mean it, i'm not saying it wasn't a cool opportunity but it was it was all you know i was all hyped up for the the secret reveal yeah. then the pictures came out and for that week i must have received ten thousand messages saying have you seen have you seen this have you seen the new car like what do you think of it and i was completely like zip i can't say anything like, the number of friends who were sending me those photos yeah. on whatsapp and, and different group chats and things it was like 
yeah, look, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> looks good. <laughs> and I'm completely, I can't confirm. I don't know what this is. I don't know what this car's about. And then, uh, obviously, yeah, then, then the video dropped. And um, it was so funny when the video dropped. I was actually driving at the time. I don't think I knew the exact minute it was going live. And I was driving uh, through Germany. Actually, I know what I was doing. I was heading from Germany back to the UK. Um, so I was, I was on the Autobahn and I knew the video had dropped because my phone just went mad. <laughs> absolutely mad i've never seen anything like it in that first half an hour like like it just started going but it was all like was that you yeah 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 <laughs> are you are you in that video it's like what do you think <laughs> <laughs> and then it, and then it became that did you release the pictures last week so yeah it was funny how it played out as a story and how it, it was left ambiguous we left it ambiguous at this stage they were they they were kind of like do you mind kind of just leaving it as it is and we just let these pictures circulate and then reveal it, you know, when we do. And I'm kind of, I don't mind. <laughs> it's all good for me. It's a shame in general when new cars release, get leaked, I should say. Yeah. Um, and you know what? While they might not be doing everything perfectly at the moment, McLaren did an incredible job with Artura. Nobody saw Artura before they presented it. I remember seeing the launch and the website. I remember going to their website and being like, wow, which was weird to just like the actual website that you could view on your phone, the way it worked for that car, I've never seen anything like that. So this is, I don't know what, who put this together, but this is insane. I, I didn't see it, so I, I don't know about that. But but the, um, the, the really interesting thing was, you know, for the reveal, they had cars around the world. They had one on the East Coast US, one on the West Coast, one in the Middle East, but yet they never got spy-shotted and posted out. And, you know, I, I know... A lot of, as you do too, a lot of the PR teams of these companies, marketing people, and a lot of people involved in the transport world, and it's it's very very difficult to stop a car being leaked to the world. But given the amount of work that goes in over many years with a new car, from the engineers, the designers, the testers, the marketing guys, planning the the whole schedule and sequence of of publication, it must be so like heartbreaking when somebody goes for that cheap shot and just shares it a photo out yeah. so yeah i was kind of full congratulations to mclaren on that one that they managed to keep it secret it was very impressive what was another one ford gt yeah the ford gt was probably the biggest one because artura people we knew they've been working on that for years yeah. i thought it was supposed to be presented a year and a half before it appeared um that was that, like nothing about that was a surprise technically you know three liter twin turbo v6 we knew that that, that wasn't new um, but the yeah the 2015 reveal of the new Ford GT was the big one because nobody even saw it coming. Nobody did. No. They they like that's one of the things I've really loved about the car actually is that whole story around it. Like nobody predicted it. I remember because I I went to the reveal of it. I was in Detroit when they did present it, and in the even like two days before when we got to Detroit, there were only the earliest of whisperings of our Ford about to present a new supercar. It wasn't mm. it wasn't in any way confirmed. The day before, I think people dismissed it a little bit. And then on the day of, even when we went into the preview, into the like hall that they had hired at the Detroit Auto Show to, to launch the car, we still didn't know it was coming. And they did the whole presentation Apple style, you know, they presented all the other new products, the GT three fifty, the Raptor, this, that, the other for performance. And then it was kind of the oh, there's something else we need to show you, by the way just at the end when we thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> and then, boom, here's the car, which you look at the production car now, it's the same. You know, they, yeah. they had that car ready with no one knowing about it. And that's not going to happen again. No one can do that again. No. Like, 
not in the digital world, social media world now. It's impossible. Yeah, stuff gets shared so quickly. And it's just it literally, yeah, like you said, there's just so many people in the chain that can take a picture. Yeah, yeah unfortunately. Um, and a lot of people don't realise the power even an individual has. So when it comes to, you know, spy shots of a new car, somebody who does have access to the car might share a picture of it to, let's say, one family member thinking, hey, I'll share it to this person. That family member might say, oh, I'll share it to my friend. He won't share it anywhere. That yeah. friend then puts it into a group and then boom, it's out. It's done. You know, yeah. there are no secrets. I, I learned a long time ago, even with my Shmi stuff, if I want to have a surprise for my videos, don't put it in WhatsApp groups with friends because yeah. it, will, it will get out. I, you just can't even, even in any group as soon as there are a decent number of people in there gone is the the chain gone is the like ability to to track you know where something's been shared from or, or to um and you know, the person who shared it the first time who wasn't supposed to would never have even thought about it you know we're not of the mentality yet of understanding how that works yeah you know joe, joe public doesn't understand there's so many single single chains like before it goes to the into a group of like a hundred or something that like it hasn't really gone anywhere hasn't really gone anywhere and then someone drops it in like a 200 person group <laughs> yeah boom yeah i get it a lot you know i get a lot of stuff in my instagram dms that isn't supposed to be out there yeah <laughs> and sometimes sometimes it's a I, I can't speak for them but if i was that manufacturer i would probably ask that you don't continue sharing that to other people <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, stuff flies around social media very fast. Yeah, um, I, I learned, and yeah, you you absolutely exactly the same. Like, if you want to share, if I like, if I want to show you something, and and you'll say the same to me, you'll be like, look, I'll show you, but I can't send it to you. Yeah, or, or yeah. like it, it, that's like level one. That's many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's like this really, really, really cannot go anywhere. The one yeah, down there yeah. is like, I'll share it with you, but you can't share it with anyone else. And about, okay. yeah. And there's like that trust level of like, I won't. I will show it to someone else, maybe, but I won't send it to them. Yeah. There's no like. <laughs> yeah, but we're, we're in a world where everyone's learning this, right? Yeah. All of us around the globe in different countries are all learning. And, you know, we're talking about it specifically from the perspective of new car launches. But this yeah, is the anything. same with everything. It's so many categories. Yeah. Like the latest coronavirus news. <laughs> that went around WhatsApp. Yeah, or, way you know, like talking to a family member about a, a proposal or something, or a new baby yeah. or something like that. You know, that's the kind of news again that spreads boom, 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 boom. Everyone knows. Yeah. It's, I can see how 
like you said, so much work goes into these reveals. And then it gets leaked. And there's... A, this is a frustration element, for sure. There's, like, two ways of doing it. One, you've just got to deal with it, which is what most people do. And then some, and in my view, I understand, but I think they get it really wrong. They start singling out individual people and just really, like, having a go at them. And yeah. that person did not take the photo and they did not share it for the first time. They got it in a group. No, maybe they did, but it's highly unlikely it's that person that's, that actually leaked it. And all you do is piss that person off unbelievably by having yes, a go at them. Yeah, for, for effectively resharing something that was out there. Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, it's it's one of these things. I, I you know worked out a long time ago that something can be floating around, but if I reshare it with a massive audience it will accelerate that process much quicker. Yeah. Um, obviously I have a close relationship with a lot of the people who work on many of these cars because I go to so many of these events and I meet them all, you know, the designers, the engineers, the test drivers, yeah. the marketing teams. I know so many of the people now at the car companies. So I know I have an interest in obviously protecting what they've worked so hard on. It, it's a very difficult one because, you know, there's no way to prepare for that kind of thing. It's, it's like, you know, you're a journalist at a newspaper and a story comes up. Yeah. You go with it. it. It happens right then and there. But if you're the marketing manager at a, a, an OEM car manufacturer, you didn't prepare for what if the story leaks today? You know, mm. you had your schedule of this is what we're posting, this is what we're posting, this is what we're posting, and you've worked on it for a couple of months, and then all of a sudden you've got to trash everything you did and start rewriting the script again, and all of a sudden it's your work's wasted it's a damper on your emotions and in many cases i think it's a bit of a stress i completely agree with you that when something is out it's virtually impossible to control that news anymore um and the the number one trick is to work out how to be responsive to it secrets online don't work when, when something's out there in some form you're best going head-on approaching it with a new plan yeah but it's very hard in the heat at the moment i think to come up with that it's just, it must be an absolute nightmare. And unless you've planned for it and from the outset gone, basically from day one, this is going to get leaked. And like, how do we plan this over time? And how does that plan evolve over time for if it gets leaked? Which is a lot of work. But Yeah, what, one thing I never understood with car manufacturers is that a lot of them, obviously people like myself receive pictures of most new models before they yeah. launch um, to do a piece about if I choose to. Um, what I don't understand is when somebody who's on that kind of approved accredited list leaks something, which mm. happens like magazines, they're the worst yeah. at it or, and plenty of social media pages as well and blogs and things. When somebody leaks something, why they still get the next stuff? Why do people keep sending stuff to people that leak it? Yeah, I don't <laughs> understand. And also like now the tech is absolutely out there for you to be able to send each journalist a different file. Like not yeah. as in it's got a different a metadata file. You can see like, where it leaked. It's like full on metadata into the actual photo that cannot, even if it's screenshotted or whatever, it's still in there. And you can just go, Tim leaked it because it says Tim's photo on it. And you're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, I don't know why nobody does that. That and would be really quite awkward. Somebody will share a photo without realizing that at some point. Yeah. That, that a brand has done that. And then they'll get full like caught rabbit in the headlights boom because <laughs> no okay that because that's quite like a nerdy photography thing to know that you yeah but do. i love the idea of it um, <laughs> it's and great. It is absolutely what i would do 
and just hang that person out to dry, like big style, very publicly, <laughs> because don't don't do it. And like you said, well, you make magazines. a joking tweet about it. You make a joking tweet, <laughs> you know, thanks to this person without tagging, yeah. obviously. Thanks to this person. <laughs> For the uh, glorious leak that we've been working for three years on or whatever. Yeah. You may not be at the next press launch. Someone else from your magazine will be. Because also, cause like your, your platform like, is, is huge now. And your uh, Facebook page, for example, and, and there, are other, there are other iterations of this, is basically a news service. Like it's got, you know, you talk about, you have some, whether it's you or someone else writing about the new whatever Artura has been launched, here's the specs, all this sort of stuff. So when something's been leaked, you guys do post about it because it's now news. How do you draw that line? Oh, it's hard. When to post it, when to not post it? Believe me, it's really hard. We have a lot of discussions. You know, something will hit the inbox and the guys will say, can we post this? And I have to put the brakes on. Uh, Like you say, the Facebook page is not run by me personally. The Shimeon 50 Facebook Mm. page is run by a team of guys. I have very little involvement in it. Um, but there have certainly been times where I've been like, uh, uh-huh, not posting that, <laughs> you know, that that's not what we consider like in the news. Generally, yeah. it needs to be on one of the big car blogs first. Yeah. So, somebody of a big scale before we can post anything out. And if we've been, if we have been officially given content for that, like in, if we've been given content under embargo in advance, we won't share anything. Yeah. Like it, nothing until the embargo. You know, if we're in, an agreement but i think equally it goes the other way around if we see something leaked we'll probably share it with the pr guy or pr person at the manufacturer and say hey do you know this is out there yeah you know they probably don't yet we we see things probably before yeah. they do it's a two-way relationship you know they'll they might say yeah it's out there go ahead yeah i think it's i think it's it's a relationship thing you know like i say we don't want to steal anybody's thunder um i had a few enough run-ins of my own when i was smaller in the car world but I think it's better for everyone to play by the rules, you know, to work together. It's it's difficult because when you are a smaller platform, obviously you want to get that breakthrough scoop. Yeah, you want to get that scoop impact. that makes your page grow, which is easier to do if you share something that isn't out there yet. But it's yeah, it's it's difficult. It's I, I there's there's no real like clear definitive path that you should take take right. There's no rule book. Every situation is different. Yeah. And different people have different levels of skin in the game. Like yep. yeah, on various things. Like I got <laughs> harassed about a Cullinan back in the day. Um yeah. that had been in it that was in a lot of groups and I'd seen it posted and I just so happened to be one of the people that they they decided to call up. In fact they called they called you. They said they called called you and said, Can you can I have Sam's phone number? And you told them the to, unfortunately that is not public information so you cannot have someone's phone number and then, <laughs> it's and not as public as pictures of your calendar <laughs> and then someone else someone else you know who you are gave them my phone number and i got a very irate phone call but they were sort of that that just it, they got it wrong in the terms of even just how they spoke to me how they were dealing with me it was very much like a that one person who's now not working for the company was like you need to do exactly what i say blah 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 you signed this agreement all this sort of stuff like no no, i didn't i'm just at this point in time i'm just joe blogs i've I've had a car company as well i I filmed something that was kind of half out half not out it Mm. had been shown but i made a full video with one etc etc and i had exactly the same experience where i i got a a very angry phone call saying there's a contract that says you're not allowed to film this and i'm (laughs) like what 
<laughs> yeah. Actually, no, I've had contract. it more than once. I had a great one. One time, I've got to work out what I can say here. A car that was <laughs> at an event, but yeah. not yet available to media. But okay. being the guy walking around with the camera with a pass to be there, I was allowed to be there, but it wasn't yet fully released. It was only kind of pictures of it had been released rather than That's fully weird. released. Yeah. And I obviously made a video and put it straight on the internet, which did a million views or something. Yeah. And exactly the same. The company was like, you're not allowed to do this. It's not out yet. I'm like, well, yes, it is. You had one in public. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only person who made a video of it. I'm just the one that's smart enough to have made the video and put it on YouTube. <laughs> you're invited to me to an event. You put the car there and you know I film stuff. What do you yes. expect? Yes, but not not a um. I, I, just just to clarify, not like a private one manufacturer behind yeah. closed doors event. A public event, like oh, somewhere right. anybody could go type event. Oh, okay. That's so like so a, rogue. Like a yeah, like a, this is this is weird. Because <laughs> that that does happen occasionally. The TVR, the new TVR, which yeah, who knows whether that will appear, appeared uh, <laughs> at some yeah unknown. I remember seeing it at an event like driving around and it hadn't been at anything. There was actually nothing about it that other than there was, the well, car. there hasn't been very much marketing behind the car in general. It was launched at the Goodwood revival. I want to say in 2017, mm. September 17. I mean, I, I had gone as a depositor to a preview about six months before they showed it static then, but after that, they only, like you say, they weren't announcing things. The car just appeared like it was being driven around by directors yeah. and, what, and whatnot and occasionally going to Sunday morning gatherings and stuff. Um, so, yes, it wasn't kind of, it never had a formal dynamic debut. It just kind of popped up. And then nowadays we seem to see it, we see it more often. Well, well I don't know whether we see it more often or not than before, but you'll get customers will have cars before... Press. yes yes a so, lot excuse me, this, this is another problem uh, another minor headache yeah so with. this is this is the one that i had that i was just talking about they delivered customer cars and i i've had this a lot um in the recent times because especially during the 12 months so far of fewer events happening and travel mm. restrictions and so forth media events have been postponed quite significantly yet manufacturers are still building cars and sending them to customers so yeah. things like Huayra Roadster BCs and Bugatti Devos and McLaren Speedtails and McLaren 620R and all yeah. sorts of different things are landing in the hands of customers before the manufacturer has done any media activity with the car officially which means that you do then end up with this slightly funky world of the cars are there. If somebody owns yeah. it. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and you know, but similarly on this, and this, we, I, from my side, you know, I get a lot of these opportunities. Um, I, the 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 latest one is Elvers. McLaren have delivered some customer Elvers. Yeah. None of the first customers have yet done anything with them, but they they delivered Elvers and they've not done any media activities. And in fact, you might have seen the recent hubbub that happened with Drag Times with the Elva. Yeah, um, that was which great. was a funny situation. Um, that was a, a factory car as it happens. But anyway, customers have cars. So, I mean, maybe I've driven, done a video with one by the time of this, but but I haven't at this this point of recording done a video with an Elva. But there have been no official media opportunities, yet customers have cars. So why not go drive one? Yeah. And you've got, if it's a customer car, there are no ties to anything. Not that you you're, a video you're going to do of anything is going to be remotely like too controversial or anything like that. But if it's a customer car, it's their car. They can decide what on earth they want to do with it unless you're from a certain manufacturer 
or certain manufacturers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear that's a thing. <laughs> I, I uh, in twenty twenty one so far, a manufacturer has blocked me from driving something. <laughs> Why? I don't. Un- I don't understand and the said, reasoning. Don't do it. Well, they don't get the opportunity to prepare the car, right? Yeah. They don't get the opportunity to give you a car that may or may not be normal. <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. <laughs> we can talk about that at some other time. Yeah, um, that one's going offline. <laughs> <laughs> so you've okay. So you did. You were in the UK for a while. Then you were in Germany. Then you went to Dubai, which is a lovely sunny place. And then you went over to America. And you've been in America for a while. Yeah. What's it like? One, it seems like you've come across some obscene car collections and been able to go out and drive some absolutely bonkers things. What's it like filming and recording and stuff in America versus Europe or even the UK? Is it a bit different? So social media in general is so much more open in the US for two reasons. Firstly, more people have an understanding of what it is. You know, if you're walking around with a camera, somebody says, oh, you're a YouTuber. Whereas Mm. if you walk around with a camera in London, someone's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. it's a completely different mentality. And the, the result of that is is a few fold as well. It means that people are more open to the concept of sharing things in America. But there's also a very different culture. And particularly when it comes to very expensive assets like hypercars, there's more a culture of supporting somebody who has something like that, as yeah. opposed to the European, more jealous attitude. In, in America, if you see somebody, you know, fueling up a Bugatti at a fuel station, gas station, sorry, got to get it right. Yeah. The the person will probably say, you know, oh my gosh, nice car, you know, what do I need to do? Inspire me, give me some reason, you know, how do I okay. work so hard to get to that position? Whereas in Europe, the response will be something along the lines of, you know, you're not paying your taxes or, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It, it will be some completely different approach. So there's a very different attitude from car collectors as a direct result of that in terms of what they're willing to share and how much they're willing to be part of it themselves. You know, the majority of the people who own crazy expensive cars that I film with in the US want to be part of it. Mm. Whereas in Europe, very rarely, very, very, yeah. very few people who own seven figure cars in Europe would want to be in a video. Just a completely, completely different mentality. So it, it, it's a it's a place I, I love spending a lot of time. I mean, creating English language content in the first place, obviously the largest audience is the United States of America. The population is... Yeah six times the UK, five times the UK, whatever it is. Um, and I, you know, I get that in my stats. There's a slightly higher UK bias, but my US viewership on YouTube is like 32% to 11% in the UK. So mm. I, I've always kind of harnessed approaching an American audience in the way that I create my content, which, yeah, okay, I'm British and British people might expect more British focused content and it is very different even down just down to the way you present things you know if you've watched American documentaries or TV shows things will be repeated more frequently and they'll go back over okay. things it's just a different style very different style of of creating content even down to where how adverts work you know Americans don't get upset by adverts Europeans hate no. adverts Europeans hate the idea of a sponsored shout in a video because oh my gosh you must be making some money Whereas in America, it's like, oh, this is cool. You're doing something exciting and you're making some money. Congratulations to you. You know, yeah. I'll support. Very different. Very different. So I love being in America. In January 2020, before all hell broke loose, I actually managed to finally land my US work visa, which gives me permission to stay there. It's an extendable visa, but I could be there all year if I wanted mm. to. Um, obviously, you have to pay taxes in the US as a result on American income. That's all very, very, very complicated. But 
my idea had been to spend a lot more of 2020 over in the US to make the most of this, but unfortunately that wasn't uh, possible, of course. So I find it a, a, a place that I just first see much more enjoy filming because crazier things happen all the time, more last minute, just more exciting. But also it's so much more welcoming, so much more like just a nice place. You know, one of the things I started trying to do a while back, and not that I focus on negative comments online, I'm sure you're the same as me, you're aware, but you don't try and highlight it, was I started yeah. trying to look more into who is being negative. Okay. And, you know, negative comments are a tiny percentage overall, and we don't really engage in them, but they help you get a feeling for what are you doing that, what are you doing wrong? You know, what, what are yeah. you perhaps, what could you do better to, 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 to make less people unhappy with what you're doing? And, 90% of the negativity I receive is from accounts that are clearly in the UK. Okay. So 10% of my audience and 90% of my negativity. Wow. And I always find this fascinating from a mathematical point of view, because that that's just does not make sense at all. And, you know, you can tell what country somebody's in because you just find a picture with um, either an outdoor location, street, so you can yeah. see a street sign or or painted lines on the road or with a car you can see a registration mm. so it's very easy to tell where somebody and where somebody is in the world um and that absolutely fascinates me because you know it pushes me to want to spend more time in general away from the uk why, why would yeah. you want to be somewhere that's negative and a lot of the negative i i get around me i've got various ideas for why it is you know being from the uk there's a, you know it, it goes back a little bit to what i just said you know people might i guess be annoyed that I'm off doing something that's quite yeah. cool or, or whatever it is, but it does, you know, it does upset me a fair amount because, you know, we all like and are proud of where we, where we grew up, where we're from, where we spend our time. So it's an annoying thing, but you go to the U S and like you said about driving some incredible cars this year so far, I've been out in stupid stuff, stupid, stupid, stupid stuff. I mean, I think this year I've been in a, a Veyron, a Chiron, a Chiron Pursport, a Devo, a Sian, a Sabre, a P1, another Sabre, a LaFerrari, three Huayra BCs, Jamira. Uh, <laughs> How is that? That's I'm, an interesting one. Brain is like frazzled. The, I mean, the, the, the list is, and you know, we're only a few months into the year. Um, <laughs> um, the, the Jamira that's running at the moment isn't the full production car. It's the kind of show car. So it's a, a gentle pace thing, but fun to sit in it and get that yeah. feel of a four seat mid engine car with a very short overhang. You know, you feel like you're in a 911 or something. You, you feel like you're right up towards the front of a mid engine yeah. car, except there's comfortable seating for four. And as they proudly say, eight cup holders, <laughs> which I find <laughs> relatively amusing. Um, but that's actually a fun story alone because I've basically been chasing that car around the world. I filmed it in four different countries oh, right, nice. <laughs> in the last 12 months. I mean, I even didn't include their Zonda R and Vulcan, you know, casual. Casual. Yeah, like the, the list, I, I, I need to sit down and like rewind back myself and work out what, what on earth I've done. Because I, I did the sort of pre-podcast scroll like through videos and photos and whatever and just seeing like... And, and I have to say for Shmi 150, it's, it's, it takes quite a long time because for some people, just like scrolling back through the YouTube videos, there's so many bloody videos I've got to go back yeah, every through. Day. Like, <laughs> every day for two, 365 days. How do you feel about that space at the moment? The current crazy hypercar top of the market? And I mean, I find it incredible the number of cars that are arriving in that space. It's obviously grown substantially, even in the time I've been making YouTube videos back in 2010, 
if you wanted to spend a million dollars, let's say, on a car, what did you have as a choice? A Veyron? Yeah. Was there anything else in 2010? Don't I don't understand. know, not really, not much. Now, if you want to spend a million dollars on a car, you've got about 40 options, some of which are may never come to pr- you know, into fruition, some of which are significantly delayed and many of which are out there, but not so many of which have a reason to be or a, a purpose. They're just a business because the car world has ballooned in recent years. I recently drove the Lamborghini Sian, which I thought was quite an interesting car. I think visually it's everything a Lamborghini could ever be. It's crazy dramatic and totally in your face, which is insane. And it's a little bit of a technology demonstration as well yeah. for them. Um, the supercapacitor setup that slightly hints towards the, I guess, next generation of Lamborghinis V12 as they head after emissions targets, etc., etc. But it's also nothing like the emotion of, you know, a LaFerrari that I drove a few weeks before. It's a, it's, it's silenced thanks to reg- regulations. So when you turn it on in Strada mode, it's yeah. pretty quiet and meh. And just nothing like the passion of cars, even not that long ago. And, you know, when Ferrari follow up the LaFerrari, let's say, and that's due in the next year or two, the, they're, they're doing a, a track hybrid, limited hypercar, I believe. Guesswork here. Possibly. <laughs> Possibly, I've maybe. i mules. It, I can guarantee it will be savagely fast, but it won't be as emotional to drive as a LaFerrari, I'm sure. I'm sure it would be an incredible car, like an absolutely incredible car. But there's a bit more to it so i think the space we're in right now is one of to me a car needs to have a purpose i.e the amg1 it has the most winning formula one engine in a road car there's a direct purpose or the new toyota gr supersport that they're making that we've seen the concept which is effectively the winning Le Mans engine of the last three years in the new hypercar class car which will be a very limited run homologation those kind of cars i think while they might not have the same emotion they have a connection to the motorsport and a history they'll have a history intrinsically yeah. linked to them forever but i really think that cars like the gordon murray t50 are going to stand out and i've not seen the t50 up to this point because it's not created to chase crazy lap times or these numbers that have just got into some territory that's irrelevant yeah. it's created to be an exciting thing to drive. And that's something that a lot of the world has been missing recently. And you know, when, when, um, a lot of companies have been going into, let's make more expensive cars, whatever we can make, you know, when McLaren have released the Senna, for example, and then the Speedtail and then the Sabre and whoever else is doing whatever they're doing. Uh, one thing I think Ferrari absolutely nailed was introducing the Monza because the Monza Mm. is, yeah, okay. It's a one and a half million dollar car, but it's a car that's they didn't try and make a stupidly fast car. They tried to make a car that will be a lot of fun. Yeah. It's different. And yeah, everyone copied them. McLaren with the Elva. Sorry, I missed the Elva. And then Aston with the V12 Speedster. And then I don't know who else is chopping off the roof of a car to make one. Yeah. But the Monza was the first to do that, not including the SLR Sterling Moss. Obviously, that was a decade before. But the Monza doesn't chase numbers. It just chases awesomeness. And it is. It and is. I think the you know the T50 is similar. It doesn't chase numbers; it chases awesomeness. It chases you know grabbing car people by the heartstrings, which is something that most of the new stuff is lacking. Yeah, and like Ferrari, Lamborghini have reasonably been like this. Like they know that let's say the Monza has to have an NAV12 in it. Yeah, 
And the experience of that car is, I haven't driven one, but I've seen one and I know what engine's <laughs> in it. And I can yeah. have, have an idea of what it's going to be like. But like, It's everything you think it's going to be and some more. <laughs> Incredible car. One of my favourite cars I've ever driven. Whereas the other versions of that sort of format, I look at and go, I'm sure that will be kind of incredible and crazy, but they don't have that engine. They yeah. might have more power, more torque, more, all, more, 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 but they don't, they won't have the same fizz. Yeah. Ferrari find themselves, I believe in quite a unique position with the new homologations because they are effectively independent as opposed to Lamborghini under Audi, under the VW group yeah. or whatnot so they have a lot more freedom to continue with their existing engines so i'm you know i'm still hopeful that we'll see this the v12 engine continuing into even the 812 gto successor you know the yeah. next 812 please 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 <laughs> <laughs> i don't want that engine to ever end but it's such a big part of the car and you know uh, well like i say when i drove the the monza for the first time i had a two-hour run on an early morning empty roads in the dolomites we left at 7 a.m it was fantastic chasing mr power slide lover and his laferrari aperta it was even better like <laughs> i can't believe i'm saying that <laughs> pinch yeah <laughs> driving a monza sp2 up mountain roads in italy early in the morning when they're empty behind a laferrari aperta 2v12 screaming but no it's a really really big part of the emotive connection and i think one of the things electric cars do is kind of make the numbers game irrelevant the fact that yeah. a tesla model s plaid is going to do a quarter mile faster than any combustion engine car, 765 LT included, the current kind of fastest traditional supercar. It's a big, heavy saloon car, and it's faster yeah. off, a, off the line or in a drag race. It kind of takes away a chase for numbers. And if we're no longer chasing numbers from a car that you take out for a, a Sunday drive, you've got to chase something else. You've got to be chasing the smiles. Yeah. And, and that isn't a car that does 2,000 horsepower and whatever, whatever. No. No, absolutely not. And I've I've been sort of I've been talking about this this exact thing a little bit. Like you can't the guy that goes and buys his car because it's set a Nurbo ring lap time or it's naught to whatever hundred and twenty five is X time. If there is a Tesla family vehicle with seven seats that will do it faster. You have to get. You have to just. You have to go somewhere else. You can't. Yeah. You just have to just ignore those stats. They don't count anymore. The thing is, there's no measurable metric for fun. No. You know, you you and I know that a Cayman GT4 with a manual box on an English countryside road is probably about as good as you're going to get. Like, yeah. Small, nimble, nice power. It, but there's no metric to be able to you know say that the car is built so well or i'm trying to think like other examples you know, even a lotus for example very hard to get a lotus to win on a top trumps sheet because it won't beat most stuff you try and put it up against but fantastic cars to drive across the range it's just no there's just no way of giving a car an official independently agreed rating for how much fun it is <laughs> yeah i mean yeah okay there are magazine reviews but it's not quite well, YouTube reviews even. It's not quite the same. It, it's not the same as yeah. My top the top speed is this, and the zero to sixty is this. Yeah, because most people, most of the buyers of these cars, are not like us or whatever, chasing that driver engagement situation. It's it's like, uh, what's the latest, coolest 
greatest. I'm sure that's not everything people are looking for, but a lot of no, cars but it's do a get lot sold of people. on that. But but what is what is the definition of coolest? Because coolest, especially over the last let's say 15 years, has been cars getting noisier and making more flames. Mm, yes, but that's gone. So what's coolest now? <laughs> yeah, looking mad. Looking mad does a lot. Like the Aventador proved that. Like looks and sounds mad sells a lot of cars, even <laughs> even if it doesn't drive that well. But like it delivers an experience, and was expensive, so people know it's expensive. But yeah, I don't know. Like I don't understand. I think the manufacturers are in, they're in a really tricky place, obviously, because mm. there are people at all of these firms that love driver involvement, light cars, a great experience. But they have to be able to jump through the hoops, whether it's making an electric car or whatever. And like, I don't think if, if you could, if you could give me a 500 horsepower, 1100 kilo car with a manual gearbox that revved to the nine or something, like that's it, job done. <laughs> I don't need any more than that. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, all all the stuff will come through more now for sure. I think the. I'm, I'm sure it is a generational thing and this is because of like mine or our age, but I feel like everything to me, everything up to the SLS black series was epic and everything newer is struggling. Yeah. You know, the early 2000s, ni- the 1990s, early 2000s Carrera GTs, like there have been so many epic cars in that period. Whereas the new stuff has all become so much chasing numbers. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in five to 10 years when we see the lag of what's happened now coming yeah. through to what's actually being delivered and built, um, you know, everybody putting the brakes on a little bit and, and rare will become rare again. And because it becomes rare, rare, perhaps it can get more back to what you and I like. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. We'll see my, my sort of view of what I'm looking at. I've, Driven all sorts of things, um, a lot of slow, underpowered things recently, which was quite fun. Yep. Um, like F- Fiesta ST edition, I, I really enjoyed that. Yaris, mm-hmm. that was fun. Um, those sorts of things. That's like sort of shifted my perspective a little bit. But you, you spend a lot. I spend a lot of time looking at older cars and go, "Oh yeah, th- this car from the nineties or whatever." But then you get in a modern car. I'm like, I do really like modern cars. Like, I love the fact that like cruise control and all of these things. So I don't necessarily want to live in old cars all the time. Like, I would like a modern car that ticks all the boxes that I might be getting from some older cars. Yeah, you, well, what you need is a combination, right? You need a fully autonomous electric vehicle that gets you around your daily commute. And then yeah. you need a purist car that you can still drive that has a nice engine. Yeah. You know, yeah. a manual V12. <laughs> and manual V12. Exactly. Exactly. You sold your GTC4, so you don't have a V12 anymore. I do not currently have a V12. Currently. Currently. Okay. It will happen again. It will soon. happen again. Yeah. Before they disappear forever. Yeah, well, I'm going down the V10 path for the minute. I have a lot of V8s. I seem to have an obsession with V8s. It's not really intentional, but I just seem to gravitate towards them. How are you finding your American car? You've got a few American cars. So that's that's not specific enough. <laughs> the, the GT500. The GT500. Yeah, I can't wait to have it over in Europe. It's going to be a stupid thing to drive around London. <laughs> it's huge, desperately inefficient, and it's bright green and loud. Nice. <laughs> it's, it's like the worst possible car to cruise around the centre of London in. I, I don't think I'll ever drive it in the centre of London. <laughs> Is it right-hand drive? 
No, left-hand drive. They're all left-hand drive. Left. Yeah. Um, how was it in the States? Because you've done a lot of driving around in it. Yeah, I did 7,500 miles in like five weeks. That is good going. <laughs> five or six weeks or something. Um, it's been great. You know, over there, the fuel isn't a problem because gas is like a third the price of Europe, hmm. which helps. American formula, right? They tend to be softer than European cars. Seats tend to be softer. Ride is softer. GT500 has an incredible breadth of ability with the Magnaride suspension. When you put it into track, it's really firm. If you put it in its dedicated drag strip mode, it gets so soft, it's funny. Because obviously, if you think about the car, it's rear seat delete, so there's no weight at the back whatsoever. And there's a massive lump up front. Um, So for the drag strip mode, it fully, fully softens up everything. And the result of that is that if you try and go around a corner with the car set for drag strip, it literally feels like something from the 60s that's just not put together right. <laughs> it just wallows everywhere, um, which is hilarious to experience. But then when you go into track mode, and I had a, I had a track day um, uh, back a bit with Billy Johnson, who was involved in the development work of the GT500, but he also raced the four GTs at 24 Hours of Le Mans. Mm. So safe to say he knows a thing or two yeah. behind the wheel. Um, and being passenger riding with him, both the fast way and then the very fast sideways way was quite a spectacular experience because it's really fast. And I cannot wait to get the GT500 over here to do a back-to-back with my Ford GT and GT500 on track somewhere. Yeah, I, I think it will be... I, I don't want to say that my much cheaper car is equally fast, <laughs> but I honestly think it will be, like, similar. Yeah, It's so fast. I, it's very easy with a European perspective to dismiss American cars, and I think a lot of people do. Some of them are really good. Like the GT500 is really good. Yeah, the interior is a bit plasticky, and yeah, having carbon fiber wheels on a car that already weighs like nearly 2,000 kilos is completely stupid. But you do not think a car like that should haul as fast as it does. So what horsepower does that car? Seven, 760. That's 760. But it, it gets it down. It's a seven speed dual clutch. It's, it, the gearbox feels very like a Porsche PDK gearbox. Okay. It's lightning fast very 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 effective and obviously sounds incredible because it's hooked up to a supercharged v8 so american noise and lots of noise Mm. i wonder if i have to get it muffled to import it i don't even know it's so loud is it a complicated process to bring it over no it's not that complicated it's a private you know private import and the uk is the land of kit cars and weird track stuff like aerials and bacs and caterums so getting a fairly civilized road car like a Mustang in yeah. is not that complicated. The fact that it's readily available to put on European headlights and taillights, because you know, obviously American car, it has red indicators, blinkers, as opposed mm. to amber. So it's easy to swap those, I believe, everything that you need to do. And then it just has to go through the usual uh, set of checks that the, uh, that is it, who is it that does it? Is it Vosa that they go through? And then sign it all off so it'll be fun i'll make it when i when the time comes to do it i'll make a video about that i've been kind of waiting to see because if i can get back to the us again soon i'll go and continue the tour with the gt500 but if i can't i'll just say to the guys who are looking after it in miami you know let's stick it on a boat let's get it to london yeah why not i mean lots of reasons why not but yeah (laughs) it'll be fun i think it'll just be it'll be fun fun first and foremost to have done all the miles and stuff that i've done with the car in in the usa and then to have it in the garage in in london yeah yeah absolutely in the new place amongst all of the all of the other toys yeah i asked um my audience for some some questions for you Mm -hmm. and i got a couple of couple of couple in would you swap your g-wagon for a defender 
No, not okay. even when they make the V8. Not the biggest fan. Fair enough. Quite, does, it does the job. Different. It does the job, but it's just not for me. A G wagon is a G wagon. It's so iconic, and I, I like the the Mercedes family of of cars and the way mm. it feels a lot. Yeah, and if you're towing a Mercedes with a Mercedes, great. Yeah, I don't I don't know why because I guess on paper being British, I should like a Defender. I never really grew to the old Defenders. The new Defender has made me like the old Defenders more. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I think I'm the same because I the old ones. I always just thought, I thought they looked cool, but they were crap. Yeah, and, and everyone can disagree no, the, with my the new opinion. One is just, but, but the new, the new one's, one's just good. a really good. It's a really good road car. It's, it's it ticks a lot of boxes. It does everything, but it's huge. It's absolutely gigantic. You can't get it into a lot of garages. Couldn't get it in my garage at home. Oh, really? It's taller than a G. Yeah. Oh, it's too because it's too tall. Yeah. Oh. Um, I don't know if there's like a lowering options or whatever. I didn't it probably is, but you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to have to have it down to get out. Yeah. I, I haven't looked into it cause obviously I'm not, not interested in, yeah, yeah, in yeah. buying one at this stage, but it just doesn't scream to me in the same way. Um, someone said they'd love to see some more affordable performance car content from you. And they like M2 or RS3 was a question. I think I guess maybe that was like a M2 or RS3, which would you choose? But of those two, uh, would you choose either of those? M2 or RS3. So we're talking, what, 50 grand's worth. You know, I, I've made many videos with my Focus RSs over the last couple of years, and I have the GR Yaris. Obviously, it's not featured, but, but pri- primarily my, my channel has always been the supercar, hypercar stuff. Um, yes, I love to throw in bits of fun here and there, but I think it's a, a, a channel, how do I just got, you know, content structure type thing. It's yep. more supercar focused and hypercar focused i think m2 versus rs3 of or, or that price point i mean the closest i came to was the a45s and mm. there are things that, about the a45s that aren't fantastic but there are many things that are m2s i've never really completely gelled with i having had the m2 and m2 the bit that about the m2 that annoyed me was it was a two series not yep. in like a name type situation just like you get in an m3 and the interior is like a lot nicer and yeah. it's got yeah. adaptive ride and all that sort of stuff, which the twos have never had. But yeah, I think that's what I like so much see. about the A45S. The interior mm. is the full MBUX, screens, nice seats, top equipment. Yeah, and it started, that one almost started at the A, didn't it? Well, I guess, it was it in an S before it then went into no, the A class? No, that, that MBUX system came in the A class before because even my G-Wagon doesn't have it. The G launched like a few months before the A. So it's funny that, you know, the big flagship 150,000 pound beast doesn't have something that you're like 30, 40,000 pound <laughs> yeah, hatchback yeah. has. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> it's a, it's a branding thing, right? It's, it's how these cars come out and how the, the structures work. I've learned so much about that over the years about how, you know, take the Mercedes AMG Panamericana vertical grille at the front mm. Um, for the facelift E-Class, they just put that onto the E63, right? Because the E63 came out a few weeks before the GTR, where that launched. Right. So although internally, I'm pretty sure, don't have this for fact, but internally I'm pretty sure they had planned the E63 to have that grille. Yeah. Because the GTR's launch was delayed, the E63 couldn't launch with the grille. Yeah. So it was always the odd one of the family for the last three or four years because it was the only car that didn't have it. Yeah. And... and it it's weird looking back you pick any point in time and you say okay i would like to buy a car of like x you say you've got x budget 
And you may find, like, if you'd asked me, that I, let's say, I don't know, A3 versus A4 or something like that, where you've got a slightly bigger up-the-range car. It could be E-Class, C-Class. But it depends when the facelift and the tech changes have happened can drastically alter how I feel about the two cars. Because if mm-hmm. one's just had the change, or at the price point I'm looking at, you can have the change, and one doesn't, often the lower down car can feel nicer than the one above. Yep. Just because of the drastic timing. Just, just completely different inside. Someone else said, uh, you decide to not buy a 765 LT. And how, actually, how do you feel about that car now? Like a, whatever it is, a year after it's been launched. Do you feel differently? I don't think so. I, I expected it to be a phenomenal car. I think it is a phenomenal car. I've driven a couple of them on track and drag and it's very, very, very fast. Um, I decided not to buy one primarily because I have two very similar McLarens in the garage already. It, like I, I'm not selling my Senna and I'm not selling my 675 LT. So unless I wanted to become exclusively a McLaren collector, what's the point? What's so the point? put it this way. I, I mean, effectively, you could say I bought the Hurricane STO, which is coming later this year, instead of a 765. And I think that if you look at my whole garage, it's the same money. It adds a lot more to put a V10 first Lambo in the garage than a third similar McLaren. Yeah. If it was more different to the Senna, yes, sure. But it's got the same seats, the same dashboard, the same engine, the same tub in many ways. Like, it would not make much sense. Yeah. Yeah, you've got the Senna, which is above. The Senna is like the 765 LTLT. Yeah. That just came out first. Yeah. No, absolutely. And then the follow-up to that was, do you see any more McLarens in the future? Unknown. Unknown. Um, I mean, they obviously have a lot of cool stuff coming. Um, I'm sure at some point I will. Um, for the moment, I feel like, you know, I've I've been lucky to own five different McLarens, 12C, 650, 675 Coupe, 675 Spider, Senna. You go through waves. Now I've got a bit of a Ford wave recently and then a bit of an AMG wave at the moment, I guess. Um, but I like more variety. So until, you know, something dramatically changes in the next generation. But I also think of it from a from a personal enjoyment point of view driving the cars, but also as well from a a value and a content point of view and what yeah. would spending that money on that car add to both my car collection but also the Shmiel 50 channel. And a 765 wouldn't add a lot. Um, if I was going to do a ton of drag racing, yeah, sure, because it would go and dominate everything, but mm. that's still not really what that car's been introduced for. Like, it's a lot of money <laughs> these cars they add up yeah with an absolutely unknown depreciation curve yes well it's not going to be pretty <laughs> it's not going to be it's not going to be optimum it's not going to go up any in the, no, in the short generally term now sure. with my cars like like we talked about when i go into a car i know if i'm going to keep it or not and i'm not going to go into a 765 expecting to keep it and if i'm not going to keep it what's the point in sinking two hundred thousand pounds in two years in a car yeah like Enough yeah, to go and crazy. buy outright an 812 fast now. Lost <laughs> yeah. in depreciation in two years. Like, yeah. it's not my idea of fun. <laughs> yeah. And one of those has got a V12 in it. <laughs> and yeah. you would have it at the end. And that's outright, not the depreciation. Would you get another Clio in memory of your original Clio? Watch this space. It? Watch this space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is there a space for a Clio in the garage? Yes, there, there's a space well and truly reserved and marked out for it. I don't know if by now if it might have happened, but if it hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen very soon. <laughs> yeah cool 
watch, it's watch, the, watch the space. <laughs> Do you have a favourite resto mod? Have you driven any of the, the resto mods? Not, not really. Um, I'm trying to think. I've not really spent any time around, you know, singers or many of the kind of restored Porsches. I did mm. drive a, uh, a Keen Project 911 Safari recently. How was that? Awesome fun. I mean, we were off-roading, like making a splash and drifting it in the dirt. It was great. Um, exactly what it was built for. Um, that was at a place called the Brumos Collection in Jacksonville in Florida, which was, they were really, really, really nice, wonderful place to visit. I could imagine myself wanting like a resto mod Mustang, a 60s yeah. Mustang, but modern. That'd be the kind of thing that would be up my street, probably. I don't know. I tend to be more of the opinion that if you want an old car, it should be the old car. Okay. Because you have, you have various different variations. I guess the the main ones are all like super expensive multiples of the original car price tag um but then i guess you get like my 911 it's just got the sound system aircon that's about it yeah and you know some stuff like that i mean that's like me having my the old mini that i had was a last year of production mini yeah you know, so it's similarly and i've had a few things installed cigarette sockets and whatever yeah. else same kind of theory right i i can see that happen, you know that kind of thing for sure it's it's a it's a funny space, like you say. The prices on lots of those kind of projects are really really high, and that's triggered because of the investment value of the originals. You know, they're yeah. often based on cars that have skyrocketed in price, as a way of more you know people spending more money because the original now costs however much. Don't know. Got me thinking. I'm not really sure if there's one that would stand out to me. Have you driven? Have you been to GTO Engineering? No, but I've seen your video. That's um, and, yeah. It's a good car. I should try it. I should probably should, try it. You should definitely, definitely. Will it be an expensive car. visit? <laughs> and I, you, I don't think you'd buy one, but I think you would definitely enjoy driving. Enjoy it. it, yeah. And it's, I mean, it is exactly what it is, but it's also an old car. Like it's not a, that is not a new car in any way, other than it's new. So I've just said a whole bunch of things. That, that was totally logical. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, last time you were here. We had it did five questions. Since you've answered those five questions, you can have some of them again. <laughs> five car garage. Oh gosh. <laughs> Do I have a price limit? Unlimited. Yeah, well then I just go hypercar, 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 right? Would you actually do that? Well no, because then you've got nothing to lug stuff around with. See? Here we go. Gets interesting. Based on the current time, or let's say this year, you've got to have something fairly practical. So I'd probably have to go still with my G-Wagon or whatever next year's G-Wagon will be. They'll make a hybrid one, yep. G73 or G63E or whatever they call it. One more one of those. MPG. To- well, 800 horsepower, totally unnecessary. Sounds perfect. Yeah. I mean, mine basically is anyway. So we'll have one of those. I-, I do think that, you know, modern world needs an EV. And I think the Taycan Turbo S is right up there. Maybe we can have yep. a Sport Turismo because that'll be new. I'm starting at the less interesting end. I- I'm going to have to throw in my favorite car, which is the Ferrari F50 talk about mm-hmm. it way too much but that's my like ultimate of yep. cars that exist from the past what else do we have well we've basically got two kind of dailies there so we can be a bit silly now we have something modern super grand tourery eight the 812 gto don't even know what it is gto tdf Vergione speciale whatever it is don't even very, know what very, it very, is very very fast <laughs> but it'll be epic the, yeah. the hardcore new 812 that that's yeah. on the list that's on the wish the dream list and then let's throw in a modern hypercar let's probably throw in I'm a bit tied. I'm tied between T50 or AMG1. Oh. I think, I think if I've gone with the manual V12 and the F50, I'm going to go with AMG1. 
tech tour de force. Yeah. Then you've so got MG1, F50, 812 GTO, G73, and a Taycan Turbo S Sport Turismo. That's a good garage. Totally unnecessary. Then, I didn't really have much old stuff. You'd probably have something old. I probably should have had a 300 SL or something. Oh, I don't know. Dreamland. It's, it's, it's <laughs> tough. And then a spin on this is, this is someone suggested, he suggested a few iterations and I've completely forgotten what all of them were, but was essentially if you could only have five of your cars, <laughs> which would you have? Ford GT, SLS Black, and then if we're still trying to keep a rounded garage, it has to be the G and the Taycan. Yeah. And then we need something else, which would take the other spot. Who's getting the fifth spot? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to avoid just because it's expensive saying the center, because that's not how this game should work. Yeah. I don't want to say the GT Black because that's a little bit too similar, even though it's not what I would consider a like forever type thing, but GT4, which is now there. Oh, okay. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. There is a GT4. It's not here at the time we're recording, but it is here at the it'll, time it'll of this. Be there. Yeah. It's manual, right? We're going to throw one manual in. Yeah. Can't have a garage without a manual. It's, it's quite a good game to do that one when you go. And I, like, I sort of try and go, okay, but if you could only have two cars, or like, you know, if you were going to sell everything and buy two cars, what would you do? And I yeah. pontificate on that one forever. And yeah, ever but and if, ever. if you told me I could only have two cars, they probably wouldn't be two that I actually own. Yes. Yes. That's Owning cars one. makes that question tricky. Because like, something like I wouldn't have a G as my daily if I didn't have a lot of other stuff. Yeah. A G wouldn't be one of two for me. And I would have a Lusso back. I'd have a GTC4 Lusso back. That would be my practical car if I was only on a two-car garage. Yeah. Weird. It's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's weird how that works. You go, if you could literally just liquidate all your cars for kind of what they're worth, not really losing too much up, down, whatever, like that, not thinking about that side too much. And then you've got the same number of slots. Okay. You've got a lot of slots, but if you're like, you can have four again, what would you choose? And yeah. it's often not the same. No, completely. I mean, even now, you know, it makes me think that the price I paid for the Senna, for example, buys me an 812 GTS, an SF90, and has some change. Mm. It's crazy when you start thinking about, like, that yeah. kind of perspective as well. I very much feel like that about the F40. Like, yeah, I don't drive it that much. I know what it's worth. And I go, well, if I sold it, you're like, well, I could have one of them and one of them. And one, of them. <laughs> one of those and one of those and one, one of those and have a six-figure sum left. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, Strange what world. What are you doing, you crazy person? But this, yeah. is, this is the joy of cars. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you've got a 500-pound Clio or Passat or whatever on the side. It's <laughs> <laughs> really difficult. You drive one car, probably an 812. And the 812's so phenomenal. I should probably get one. <laughs> <laughs> and I keep talking about them and I don't even own one. They're coming down to affordable prices. I need down. the 812 to be at a price point where if I buy one, I can actually drive it without living in fear of the depreciation. That's tricky, isn't it? It's like, pick when, when is that? Cause... Yeah, I mean, I, I was fairly good on that with my Lusso. Um, I had my Lusso for about two years. I, I lost a sizable whack on it, as you'd expect, but it was exactly in line with what I expected it would do when I yeah. bought it. So maybe we're getting there with 812s. And, and how old was the car that you bought? Your, I bought one GC4. that was two years old and I sold it at four years old. Yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky, those cars, because you look at them, like GTC4, like, wow, that's obviously a very sick car. And then you look at FFs, where they're at now, and you go, well, will the price 
Will they get to where FF's at, or will they never get yeah. to where FF, FF's, FF's are at? Who knows? This thing always comes down to how many did they actually make and how many people want them, hey? And how many miles have they, all of the ones sailed up that are for sale have done? They've yeah. all done like 5,000 miles, even if they're 40 years old. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the problem with an 812. You know, I know if I buy an 812, I'm doing 10,000 miles in a year with it. And then and you've got... If I want to sell it, goodbye. Something like that. An 812 specifically at the moment. Like you, you're kind of going, I want to keep this for a long time. It would be, I think you've got to go into it with a fairly longer term commitment. Um, I would love to spec a new one and go wild and do a specification that has no resale value. Take <laughs> 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 that's a bit of a, a bite of a brave pill. Yeah, and and a lot of people have have specced eight twelves and lost obscene amounts of money in a year. Oh yeah, a hundred k in a year for sure, which is insane. Yeah. People talk about horrible McLaren depreciation, but they've forgotten what V12 Ferraris do. Yeah. What is the most undervalued car at the moment? If you'd asked me that like two years ago, I know what my answer would be because I had numerous chats with people about them and it was completely right. Um, and it was the Bugatti EB110. Because mm. you could pick up mm. one a few years ago for about half a million and now million plus. So, yeah. you know, I, I completely called that that was going to be the way and wish i'd had the cash to do to do you know to buy one off off the record and, and sell it um i mean i think the next big growth which has started but i think will continue dramatically is going to be the 90s gt1 cars i mean even in the time like when i drove a clk gtr about again about two years ago at the time i think i had in my head it was a three million dollar car and that would now be a seven million dollar car yeah um which is kind of crazy um, obviously, Zondas are flying. Yeah, I wouldn't say it? Zondas are undervalued because at like seven million dollars, they're definitely not undervalued for a seven sixty or four or five million for an yeah. F or something. But I do think that that is on its way to being a twenty million dollar car. So, if that's our definition of undervalued, you probably need to get in a Zonda before yeah. they get stupid. I remember talking about this. Yeah, we talked a lot when they were like one million years didn't ago. We? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like one, and they, I think um, was it Super Futura had one for like one point two that was just never selling. Yeah, mad. That that it was a white F, wasn't it, for one point two? Yeah, you'd, you'd sell that easily for five now. <laughs> which is which is crazy. Uh, the thing is, they're all they're damn expensive now, and yeah, yeah, they're going up. Yeah, it's an interesting space. That the GT one cars, I would have loved to have owned a a Porsche GT one. Like yeah, the nine there are not very many. Is is the sickest one, but the nine nine three, I would totally have and. Yeah, those those cars you're in the double digit numbers and low, and you see them on the street, and you're like, "Well, that is a lot cooler than anything." We yeah. might see this again though with these Le Mans hypercar, whatever they're called. Yep, the hypercar Hi- class. Um, you know, the Toyota, as we talked about, and the Glickenhaus, and a couple the of others. Glickenhaus, that looked. I saw that, and I, I thought that looked pretty damn yeah. cool. It'd be interesting to watch that space. I can't wait. Happens. I mean, a lot of manufacturers that were interested have postponed or cancelled, you know, Aston Martin, Porsche, etc. Yeah. So we'll have to see how it develops, but I think it has a lot of potential for people like us yeah. to enjoy. Those will be the last ones like they're going to be. Big V12s. So. So there's not going to be anything. Ten years' time, there will be no cars like that being made. Unlikely. No, no. Well, that series will hopefully still exist, but in a different way. Yeah. Right. Final question. Most interesting car to you at the moment? 
Like to me personally or Yeah. What are you Googling? What are you auto trading? What are you looking up? Not necessarily the most expensive things. Um I spent a fair bit of time searching for two thousand five or two thousand six Ford GTs. What are they at now? Uh in pounds two fifty ish. I mean I've had yeah. my I have my Ford thing going on, right? New GT, GT five hundred, Focus R S. Looking for I'd love to get like a sixties Mustang at some point. Um so two thousand five Ford GT. Yeah, that'd be a good plan. Um, 2005 Ford GT would be a, a nice addition. So that's certainly one that I've been browsing for a lot. I'm trying to think what else I've been searching for. Got a few ideas in mind for future cars, but that's not so much searching because not looking for ones on the market. They're cool. Yeah. The Very last... different drive to the new GT. Them and Carrera GTs. 2005 Ford GTs and same era Carrera GTs. Last manual mid-engine cars. Yeah. Like not last manual mid-engine cars, GT4, etc. But last manual mid-engine proper supercar yeah stupid engine all that it's a cool period it's a cool time period and i think everyone has this sort of bit don't they they look at their sort of childhood of cars and go well those were the coolest and each generation does it and um yep i was talking to uh someone tristan from the market so one of the the online Mm -hmm. auction websites and he was saying i was saying like age of cars where's the sort of hump and he was saying, he brought up the 50th anniversary of E-Type as an example. 50th anniversary of E-Type was almost like peak E-Type prices. And then 60th, they'd started, they kind of just yeah. started slowing down again. Too and, old. That, and I thought that was quite an interesting marker for age of cars. And actually probably quite good in terms of hmm. when they reach peak cool. Because sure. people like you and I would take a McLaren F1 over a 250 GTO any day any day like everyone of our age would take a mclaren f1 over a 250 gto i mean i'm yeah. not trying to downplay the 250 gto as an incredible car but uh, you you do this with your history and and probably in 30 years time we'll take a zonda over a 250 gto yes and if you said you can buy a, t- a 250 gto now for 50 million or you can buy however however many zondas or yeah, mclaren zondas. f1s you can get for 50 60 million whatever this unknown price is for a 250 these days i would go yes of course i will of course i will take that and in 10 years time 20 years time i think you would have made an awful lot of money yeah if you put 50 million dollars now into zondas cleaned up the market and had everyone that was there <laughs> didn't someone do that <laughs> well and as someone that is basically seeming to do that um my uh, crazy friend mike out in la he's becoming pagani collector extraordinaire <laughs> He yeah. recently bought the Zonda R and a Zonda F and has his uh, Huayra BC and a Huayra Roadster. And I don't even know. <laughs> I don't think it's ending there. <laughs> that's a mad bunch. What was the Zonda R like? Did you, what did you get to do with it? Because that's one of those cars that was kind of super cool, but never really had a purpose. Yeah, never really had a purpose because it's not a full race car. Um, it's a gentleman's toy. But even as gentleman's toys go, it's not, let's say, the best because it wasn't built to be that. It was... Yeah kind of made into that um it sounds stupidly cool obviously like the engine is the greatest thing in the world it's yeah. a 750 horsepower naturally aspirated six liter v12 it's pure automotive heaven um unrestricted Inconel exhaust etc etc but you know we we went out to the i went out to the track with mike and you know he's he's only done a couple of outings on track he, he openly you know said you know yeah. he's just got to get into it and fair credit to him for taking his car that he just bought and doing a track <laughs> Fair a couple play, of track yeah. apps with it um and driving it reasonably hard in the process and the sound was just like 
heaven absolute mm. heaven um it, it, the plan had been for me to take the wheel afterwards but unfortunately oh. there was a, he had a little bit of a lock up and flat spotted the front tire and this is where let's say race car but not real race car necessarily because full carbon fiber front clam if we went and did some more laps on a heavily flat spotted tire imagine if that shredded and exploded you then tear off a 300,000 pound front carbon mm. fiber clam you can't yeah. take that risk. I'm not yeah. taking that risk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd love to have driven it, but that will have to wait until an- another day. But it was—it's kind of crazy because I was thinking it's, it's a 12-year-old car. Zondra doesn't wow. feel like it's 12 years old. No, you look at it now, and like they just look unreal. Yeah, imagine that. That—that cool. that is a car we need to see in Le Mans. Like I—I yeah. I wouldn't imagine them doing very well. But no. if they—they they made a Zonda. A Zonda, whatever. But this GT1 is the problem: car. the cost prohibitive. I know the hypercar class—they're trying to cap costs so it doesn't spiral into that kind of. I think LMP1 was getting to three hundred and something million a year yeah. in euros um, before everybody started bailing out of it. And even the hypercar class is going to be—I I, I feel 20. like it's a hundred and something or two hundred million or whatever. It's significant money. But a company like Pagani and Koenigsegg don't have that. You, no. That's only possible if a very wealthy billionaire customer client, you know, wants to run the program yeah maybe that happens but the development work and costs is just it's you know if you want to do it for four years you're going to be spending the best part of a billion dollars yeah i wonder how much glickenhaus has spent yeah but he loves it he's 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 so fun i don't know if you've ever met him just ignoring like the he loves it obviously he loves it like he wouldn't (laughs) be doing it if he didn't love it but he's exactly done that he's gone like i'm building a car that i'm gonna race race, and maybe some people have you ever met jim i've never met him though he is a great guy, crazy passionate, brilliant stories, always a delight to meet. I, I've been lucky to meet him in quite a few different places around the world, including on the streets of uh, Washington, D.C. about a year and a half ago. I was literally just around the corner from the <laughs> hotel I was staying at, and I saw the SCG parked outside, and he had been at an awards dinner inside, as it happens, complete coincidence. And he wow. walked out, and I was like, oh, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, really nice guy, and I mean, that's the like definition of passion, right? for this yeah to you know go full on the way that he does with his team yeah no it's super cool I, I love those sorts of projects and those sorts of things like just for the passion of doing it wanted to do it and keeps at it um another guy a bit like that who i've spoken to recently and i know you've met david dicker yeah roading cars down in yeah. new zealand now like just building something that's he wants to build the fastest track car on the planet yeah and it sounds like they've done it like <laughs> <laughs> why not yeah very cool very cool well there we go we've made it made it to the end thanks very much for coming on pleasure always great to chat cars and talk about what's going on in the world yeah no it was good it was very good and uh well i don't know i'll see you i'll see you sooner than this but like back on the podcast at some point but i i i I don't imagine we'll do it in exactly one year literally to the hour (laughs) Well, if not, see you same time, same place next year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> see what's happened in between. Cool. Well, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.